is Radio Orbit. I'm Mike Hagan. We'll be back in a minute with Dr. Dennis McKenna, Richard Glenn Boyer, the music of ISM all night. Stick around. It's going to be awesome. show. <laughs> All right, I'm Mike Hagan. This is Radio Orbit. You're listening to it. It's KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. And uh, that was the music of ISM. The song was called Beside the Sun. It's from their new release on STM Records. It's called Monkey Underneath. We'll hear more from ISM and their aptly titled disc throughout the show tonight. And uh, what a show it's going to be. Aside from the rhythms of ISM, we've got Dr. Dennis McKenna, live from his home in uh, somewhere around Minneapolis, St. Paul. Richard Glenn Boyer from his place in California. Uh, a little more about that in just a minute, but just uh, first let me do a quick thanks to Kent Stedman for spending some time with us last week, to Lizzie West and the White Buffalo, wonderful music live last week with them, and uh, more from them in, the month, uh, in a month or two for sure. And uh, thanks certainly to uh, Debbie Johnson, wonderful stuff, Free Range Radio Theater every Monday an hour before this program, setting us up just right, okay? All right, so let's get right to business here. We're going to be trying out a couple of new things tonight, so here's what's going on. We've got Dennis and Richard on the phone with us. We've got a studio full of a diverse group of individuals loaded with questions. We've got uh, live chat going on at the website. So, yeah, hop on the web and um, click over to MikeHagan.com. You'll find info about our guest tonight. Uh, links to their sites, links over to our chat room and the forum where folks are already discussing this stuff. Uh, as I was writing my little intro here, I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to uh, announce this or not, but we are streaming live right now uh, on the web. First time ever, uh, Radio Orbit live on the web. If you're anywhere in the world right now and you've got access to the web, get on it. Go over to www.cosmicwavesradio.com. Uh, thanks to the wonderful guys over there, Carrie and Paul, everybody else over there. Uh, my friend Charlie here at the station who made this possible. We just got it going tonight. I mean, literally just under the wire here. So I'm really pleased. And um, uh, I didn't even announce it on the website because I was, you know, we didn't know if it was going to happen or not. But uh, it's up on the forum now if you want to find the link. But just uh, CosmicWavesRadio.com and you'll see it easily from there. Okay? All right, so we'll do the usual first hour stuff later. And we'll get right to our guests, all right? Uh, our first guest tonight, he's a good friend of the program. He's a man uh, doing tremendously important work for the better part of four decades now. His name is Dr. Dennis McKenna. He should be no stranger to listeners of this program. We welcome him back to the show. And as if that weren't enough, we've got Richard Glenn Boyer with us as well. Richard is a senior fellow in law and policy at the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics. And he also serves, uh, serves as a director for that organization. Uh, Richard has uh, demonstrated a lifelong commitment to freedom of thought and information flow. 
He's an accomplished attorney. He's been admitted to practice in the United States Supreme Court. It's actually a really interesting story. We'll talk to Richard about it. And filed the first ever freedom of thought brief before the Supreme Court in 2002, just a few years ago. Um, uh, a synopsis of a lot of this stuff can be found on the website. I've got links to all this stuff up. So you can find out much more about uh, both Dennis and Richard by going to MikeHagan.com and getting curious, clicking around a little bit. And uh, so without further delay, Richard, welcome to Radio Orbit. Dennis, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks great to be here. All great right. to be here. Thank you, as always. Okay, well, gosh, uh, an exciting night for us here, and I couldn't think of a better way uh, to uh, introduce this program to the World Wide Web live. Of course, people listen to the show uh, through the archives for a long time, but this is the first time we've been live, you guys, and I'm so pleased that, uh, Dennis, you and Richard could, could be the ones to uh, to share it with us. Great. Let's hope it works. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're swimming in the dark right now. So, all right, a couple things out of the way real fast. The website's Dennis, www.hefter.com. Dot org h e f f t e r you can also go to arrowwood.com or arrowwood.org i guess it is arrowwood.org yeah .org and uh, uh there's a uh, an interesting page there with a lot of information and links about Dennis and his brother uh richard website www.cognitiveliberty.org and uh richard also has a website uh, at convictionfree.com that's uh, that's his his uh, law firm so all right, uh, uh, before we get too busy here, uh, Dennis, the first thing, we spoke a few weeks ago, and I've got a few emails uh, with questions. Uh, everyone was pretty pleased to hear that you had safely secured some of your uh, botanical specimens from South America back here, and I know these things are kind of slow, but uh, at any rate, people are interested if there's, if there's any news on that front and sort of what's the latest at Hefter. Oh, well... Um uh, as far as the Amazon uh, project, yeah, we were able to get all of our samples out from South America. We're finally getting things hammered out with the Peruvian government as far as uh, permissions to export these things. So we've done that, and now we're sort of in the lab phase of things, uh, and it's kind of slowed down. But basically we have to work through this. 130 samples or so, and uh, you know, make extracts and submit them for screening in the neuroreceptor screens. Um, that my colleague, uh, collaborator on the grant is is uh, Dr. Brian Roth at Case Western. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're doing. Uh, you know, it's not tremendously exciting. It's just <laughs> you just that we're just cranking through them. You know, the the classic uh, grind and, and bind. Right scenario, and just looking for something special. Looking for novel molecular structures that hit a certain range of receptors that we're interested in. Um, that that that's that's the key idea. Okay. All right. So more about that, uh, uh, people. There, there's there's some uh, a paper that actually I put up, Dennis, that you wrote a while back from the Peruvian conference uh, uh, in a Kedos that's called uh, the Future of Ayahuasca. And uh, that's up on the website. And, of course, if you go to Hefter, um, I'm not sure exactly what's there, Dennis, but I'm sure there's certainly something so they can check out. So Yeah, there's a lot of information about Hefter there. Uh, Hefter is, uh, as, as your listeners probably know, it's a nonprofit organization, uh, basically geeks, people like myself, Dave Nichols, Charles Grobe, other either neuroscientists or psychiatrists or, in my case, ethnopharmacologists. And basically, 
it's it's a similar organization to MAPS, um, which mm-hmm. is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. We're just much much less visible, and and I think as a result, much less poorly, much more poorly funded. But our focus is on uh, primarily on clinical research with psychedelics, trying to. Uh, get these thing get these things used for various types of of clinical or medical applications. Okay. Okay. So, uh, with that taken care of, Richard, uh, thanks for uh, being patient there. And uh, Dennis has been on the program a couple of times, and the listeners are pretty familiar with his work, I think. But you are a little bit more new uh, to the program, so perhaps a little bit of background. Uh, the Center for Cognitive Liberty, an interesting title, of course, for those unfamiliar. Uh, what it is, uh, we'll have to define cognitive liberty even, I think, uh, maybe where we might start. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, you and the website and the mission for uh, the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics. Okay, well, thank, th- first, thanks thanks for having me on. And it's uh, you know, an honor to be on with Dennis, whose work I've admired for a long time. Um, but the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics is a nonprofit that was formed in the beginning of the year 2000 to try and look at the way that human rights were going to evolve over the next century and beyond. And what we think is going to happen and what we hope and what we're sort of placing our bets on and helping to usher along is an evolution of human rights which will come to move beyond the rights that have been associated with the body and recognize that there are, in fact, rights associated with the mind and with thinking. And this is very ripe right now in the world of law and in the world of just social policy because there's, besides psychedelics and antigens and the whole drug war thing, there's a a lot going on with the development of um, both hard technologies like new forms of deception detectors, uh, kind of, lie detectors that mm, right. read brain waves. Brain fingerprinting, this whole thing. Brain fingerprinting and, and then a whole bunch of pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical type drugs that uh, you know affect um, everything from SSRIs to something like modafinil, which um, just recently has been uh, looked at as a possible drug to treat cocaine dependence or to help people to kind of come off of cocaine. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of developments in a range of areas that we think are calling upon the law to fast forward itself and develop explicit protections for what what can a person do with their mind, with their brain. How, you know, the brain's clearly related to thought, but yet the law has so far kind of ignored that interface. Hmm. And so the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics was designed and continues to probe that area and um, do little projects that we think are going to move things in a direction that we're interested in in moving them. How long have you guys been in uh, in operation? We started in the year 2000, and it just took off like a rocket because that happened to be um, sort of the end of the dot-com boom, and a lot of the people mm-hmm. who were, had made lots of money at that time really liked this idea and were <clears throat> excited about it and funded it in a in a way that gave me very unrealistic uh, grandiose ideas of how easy it would be to fundraise. <laughs> and welcome to the real world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, the PayPal thing's not working out for me so well, you know. Yeah, well, you know, I probably decided that's just not my bailiwick. And so, um, 
now we only do projects that that the funding kind of comes very easily because I, I don't like going around with my you know hat out and so on and so forth. So right. um, that's how it works. All right, uh, Dennis, how were you introduced to uh, Richard and his work? Well, I'm not sure exactly. We've been sort of traveling in the same circles for a long time. It was probably one of those <laughs> infamous Friday night dinners or one of those kinds of things. Quote-unquote dinners. Right, right. Well, no, they were dinners. <laughs> Excellent, by the way. But I've known of his work for some time, at least since 2000, mm-hmm. and I have great admiration for what he's doing because I think – you know, he his this notion of cognitive liberty. He's really cut to the chase here, in the sense that the the uh, the war on drugs and that whole issue is really just a small subset of the issues that he's trying to address, hmm. which basically comes down to, you know, freedom of thought. And you know, it seems to me that there is always. Probably throughout history, there's always been this dynamic tension between, you know, the the government or the authorities, whether it's the government or religious, ecclesiastical authorities or some combination of these, you know, has vested interests in controlling people's behavior and especially what people are thinking and all of the techniques of propaganda and media that we see brought to bear today are right. basically being brought to bear to influence how people think. Right. You know, but what is different now is that you know they, there are new technologies that are coming on that are um in some ways promising and in some ways quite worrisome because mm-hmm. it, there's, you know, a distinct possibility that uh you know they can influ- exert influence beyond just the the sort of old tried and true techniques of propaganda um and and Richard has identified this problem and is standing up basically for the for the freedom to to think uh you know you wouldn't think that you'd have to but uh, apparently we do in this day and age so you know, he's taken the lead on this. It's very important work. Well, uh, Richard, let me ask you a question about that. You know, we talk about human rights all the time, and, and, and I think about uh, uh, in this country, you know, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. You know, we name it that, and we have certain rights that are afforded us. Uh, uh, the right to practice religion, the right to the freedom of speech, uh, the right to... Uh, you know, freedom to assemble, all these things, to ask for redress of our grievances, which doesn't work out very well, actually. But um, uh, the, w- where does it talk about freedom of thought? Well, that, of course, is the problem, is that it, it, it doesn't. It's, it's kind of the, the, the zero amendment. It's the amendment that, that wasn't mentioned, partly because I think it was um, kind of un thinkable that there would be some way to, to really tinker with somebody's thoughts directly or or the government would take such a, a step to stop people from from uh, doing that themselves and so it wasn't ever written into the Constitution but it's it's there because it's every time you look at any of not all but but the, some of the basic rights in the Bill of Rights like the First Amendment for instance um, just something like freedom of speech is clearly the courts have said on over and over that the value of this is 
because we have this marketplace of ideas and we want to have this open and free and that's why we allow everybody from the Nazis to the Girl Scouts to, you know, voice their position on topics. Well, obviously, if you're, you get, you can undercut the First Amendment quite easily rather than targeting speech, you actually go straight to the thought. And if you stop a person from being able to have a particular thought, whether it's by, you know, prohibition, which limits people in experiencing certain states of mind that they may not be able to induce in any other very reliable or safe way, right. or whether it's actually creating a thought in a person by making them take a drug, which the courts will do it sometimes. Um, so th- this, this, the idea of cognitive liberty, it kind of underlies a lot of the fundamental rights we already recognize. Another one is, of course, um, the right to privacy, which is not mentioned in the Constitution, but it's been recognized as a fundamental right. Mm-hmm. And most people conceive of thought right now, at least its genesis, as being an interior thing to the individual. Um, and so the right to privacy or the right to, to you know, not be subjected to unreasonable searches. Right, the Fourth Amendment comes close. Fourth Amendment. Right. These, are, these are rights that, that when you kind of cut below the rhetoric of them, what they're doing is they're protecting interior spaces. Whether it's inside of a house or the inside of an envelope or inside of a briefcase, and uh, you know the theory that that sort of underlies and the basic principles fit and and would speak to the same right to uh, think of the the head or your skull or your brain as an interior space that that deserves a t- type of protection that requires a great deal by the government before it can just kind of come in there and, and change the way you're, you're using your brain. Right. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of freedom of speech, for example, I mean, it, it seems sort of intuitive, but really not. But, I mean, of course, you have to be able to have the thought. Well, that was the whole thing in like order Orwell. to make the speech. When Orwell, you know, wrote, there's this, you know, the, the idea there was in, in 1984 was a control by controlling language. Hmm. It wasn't about, you know, old speak and new speak. New speak wasn't to, to really, they didn't care about controlling language. They, over and over, the, the government in that novel controlled language for the purpose of restricting thought. Right, and so, right, right. there's just no doubt that First Amendment's not about the, like the paper and the ink, it's about the underlying thoughts. And that's where, um, now the courts need to start to kind of get fast forward themselves on on what's really at stake here because so far they've done a terrible job at kind of getting up to speed on these issues. Hmm. Amazing. Now, so Dennis, you're you're sort of on the other side of not really on the other side of the issue, but you're involved in development and research of some of the things that Richard is talking about here. Now, how does this fit in with the work that you're doing in you mean the the uh, drugs to treat schizophrenia? Yes, the stuff that you're working on with he- with the grant from Hefter. Well, sure. I mean, I, I don't think I, I don't think that you can arrest these technologies. You know, no. uh, pharmaceutical technologies are going to be developed. Uh, you know, um, other types of neural technologies are going to be developed. I was just reading something before I came down here in the Otney Reader about these some of these brain implant machines hmm. that they're now using originally they were used to treat parkinson's and now they're being adapted to things like uh obsessive compulsive disorder <laughs> amazing you know and they have 
helped people. Uh, I mean, I think the key thing here, all of these technologies are going to be available. There's really no way that we can stop them. Uh, but a technology in and of itself is not, you know, evil or good. It's the uses to which it's put. Right, the wisdom behind it. And I think the key thing here is the issue of coercion. You know, if a person has, say, schizophrenia or obsessive-compulsive disorder and perceives that as a problem and wants to be, you know, wants to be treated, if it's their choice, to be treated, then I'm fine with it. It's when mm-hmm. government steps mm-hmm. in and says, it's not your choice. Right. We're going to force the treatment on you. And Richard has argued, I think, a couple of cases in, in this respect. You know, you, uh, there was one previous case, which I, I'm sure he can tell us about, you know, in which a person basically stopped taking their medications and as a result was psychotic and because they were psychotic couldn't be tried for the crime alleged that they committed Mm. and the governments wanted to implement procedures to force the person to take their medication so so that they could then you know and it's the issue of choice you know it's the same issue that comes up with abortion you know uh, nobody is forced to get an abortion, uh, but what the government wants to do is to take the element of choice away. They want to, you know, speaking to this issue of privacy, you know, they, it's all about control. Mm. And they, you know, the, the uterus is a private space as well. And, you know, a woman should have should say what's done with that. I agree with you, Dennis. And it's the, it's very much the same issue. It's all about, you know, how these technologies are going to be applied. Right. I mean, I, I think it's great that we have neuroimaging technologies now that can examine brain states in fairly fine resolution. We can use them on Tibetan monks. Maybe <laughs> we can understand a little more about what mystical states of mind are and psychedelic states of mind and that sort of thing. But, when you, but you know, when you come to the point where, you know, for example, you can't step on an airplane without undergoing a brain scan, uh, then I think we have to be very careful. And we're not there yet, but give it five years. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, there's actually... Uh I'm I'm on the web right now, you guys, and I'm looking at a story that I found a couple of weeks ago, and it had to do with this uh, this organization that calls themselves Terrasem, the Terrasem movement. But Richard, this is something that I thought might interest you. But check this out. It says the Terrasem movement has posted online streaming videos of a moot court hearing on the petition of a conscious computer to be treated as a legal person. A moot court hearing is a legal role playing exercise conducted by real lawyers and judges in preparation for anticipated actual. Uh, judicatory proceedings. So there's also a technological side of this whole thing, too, that we haven't even talked about yet. Actually, yeah, the TerraSound people are really interesting. I'm going to be out there for um, a little gathering, I think it's in July, on nanotechnology and neurotechnology coming together, which are both things I don't know a whole lot about, mm-hmm. but it's going to be an interesting, um, interesting scene, I think. So it's, there, there's, there, there are groups now that are <clears throat> beginning to facilitate a discussion in this area, um, and I think that it is moving ahead in a way that it will generate some 
degree of um, kind of wise policy making at some point. The, the, the kind of the problem that I see in which I lose sleep over sometimes when I get really neurotic about it is that the legal system is part of what's with psychedelics or with with some of the other technologies that have been controlled um, in the past that that's been difficult is that they they don't interface well with the legal system and so to me the question has been for a long time like what is it that's <clears throat> strange about these things that you know, just in the same way that I think Dennis looks at the way that these drugs can affect the human system, I'm kind of been looking at the way they affect the legal system. And what's what I'm finding there is that the the system that I'm engaged in, which is the law, has a built-in bias to be conservative. That's the, what the law is about: is to make the world predictable in the future. And when you decide a case, when a judge is looking to determine what to do. They actually look back in time to precedent, and and they don't look for it. It's not a system that's based on imagination. It's a system that's based much more on memory, or hmm. it's more on you know habit than novelty. It's more on on um, locking down things. And whereas science and technology is just the opposite. Its goal is to push forward and unfold the future. And so when you have these two, when you have the legal system actually kind of having a certain degree of steering over this thing by, by saying what's legal and what's not with regard to people using these things, you're coming into something that's, you know, biased in a direction that's going to impede the development of science in, in a way that I think we've seen with psychedelics since the you know, 50s and the 60s, mm-hmm. and which we could see very much so in the next few decades with respect to other technologies. But don't, don't. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think impeding. I mean, I'm, I'm all for science and pushing the envelope. But I do think that, you know, what Richard said about wise policy making. Hmm. This is the thing, and this is what the legal system can help us do: is to formulate wise policy. And God knows we need to do that. If we had formulated wise policy, for example, with with energy 30 years ago. I mean, we knew what the issues were. We knew what the problems were going to be, but we didn't deal with it, and now we're in a heap of shit. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Ah, uh, heck yeah, why not? You know, you know, we're only talking to the whole world, Dennis, so... <laughs> but, but you know, you know what I mean. So there's this dynamic tension, sort of, between the need to proceed cautiously with things like cloning, for example, Mm. all these neurotechnologies, psychopharmacology, you know, and and with respect to psychopharmacology, I would say, you know, uh, it's it's not the illegal drugs that we need to be worried about. It's the corporate drugs. Mm. And because those are the tools that the control society can use to essentially control what people can think, uh, very much in the sort of Brave New World thing. A gram is better than a dam. <laughs> that, that, that was the motto. And uh, so, you know, we need to wisely regulate these things, but I think we've, sh- we've shown time and again that outright prohibition doesn't work. I mean, it certainly doesn't work with drugs. Yeah, because, well, Dennis, it seems like the, the, that the point that, that I get from both of you in this first segment here is that 
there are both there are two sides to all of these things, whether it's technological or pharmacological. They're they can be used for great benefit, perhaps. In other words, uh, maybe there's reason to be really excited about some of this stuff, but at the same time, there's the uh, there's the other polarity of it. They, they can be used for great benefit right. or for great harm, and it depends on on who's uh, on using who's them. using them, hmm. you know, and for what purposes. Right. And, and given you know the current political climates and and what is going on. It's worrisome because you know if if you if you could have a belief in a you know compassionate uh, wise you know compassionate wise leaders that could be trusted to use these things in a wise way, then we wouldn't worry. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. Mm, you know, you, you can pretty much assume that. <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the uses to which these technologies are going to be put will probably not be for the greater good. They'll probably be for the consolidation of, of power in the, in the hierarchies that already possess it. Okay. This is the scary part. All right, you guys. Well, look, that's a, that's a chance here to take a break, okay? Uh, so we're going to play, uh, play a piece of music here. We'll come back, and uh, Richard, I want to talk a little bit more about, we'll, we'll continue along the same line. Maybe you can talk about some of the legal cases that you've run across uh, that, uh, that are dealing with these exact issues. Uh, maybe some of the ones that we're doing well in. In other words, I'd like to talk about the UDV uh, case at the Supreme Court. To me, that was a stunner. And, and, uh, and then maybe, you know, I don't know, just some successes and failures. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that when we come back, all right? I'd be happy to. Okay, great. All right, everybody, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, and uh, my guests are Dr. Dennis McKenna and Richard Glenn Boyer. Information about them uh, can be found on my website, www.mikehagan.com. If you want to listen to this program live on the web, you can do that too at www.cosmicwavesradio.com, and it'll be simple. You'll see it right up on top there, okay? All right, so uh, another piece of music here from my new friends. The band is called Ism. The CD is called Monkey Underneath. And uh, this is called Wake Up and Write It Down. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
All you have to do. That's right. That's ISM. Uh, again, wake up, write it down. If you want to find information about that band, they're at www.ismmusic, ismmusic.com. All right, there you have it. As I said, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's about 11.45, now 11.43 on Monday evening. It's the 1st of May. It's May Day, and we're live with Dr. Dennis McKenna and Richard Glenn Boyer from the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics. And, uh, Richard, I'd like to ask you real quick, uh, if you could just sort of give us an update like we talked about before the break about some of the uh, some of the cases that you've run across. And then everyone here was screaming at me at the break that for me to shut my mouth and to let them ask you guys some questions. So I think we're going to start doing that right after uh, right after we uh, hear that from you, okay? Okay. Um, well, that's tough, I guess. What about the UDV case? Maybe we could start with that. I thought that was an interesting one. Well, that's one that it is, you know, there was a victory in, and that, that's in no small part due to Dennis's work and his colleagues at the Hefter Institute and elsewhere. Um, that's a case that involves um, a church in Brazil that uses a, um, well, actually, maybe Dennis should talk about what, what's involved in the church, and then I can talk about the legal side of it. That would be great. Okay, well, uh, the UTV um which is short for the Unial do Vegetal. I'm not sure I'm saying it right. It's a Brazilian sect, I guess you could call it, about 10,000 members that uses ayahuasca, which is the Amazonian hallucinogenic beverage that's very important basically throughout the Amazon basin. But a few years ago, a few decades ago, I should say, there were several syncretic churches that were formed in Brazil uh, that use it in a very non-traditional way. In, a, in the traditional way, it, it's basically a classic shamanic psychedelic. They use it much more like a sacrament, similar to the way the Native American church uses peyote. And they've been going in Brazil for, oh, well, the UDV really since the early 70s. And then there's another uh, other large religion there, called the Santo Daime that's been around since the 30s. And they use this thing as a sacrament, basically. And Where do they get the the leaves and the vines? Well, they they grow the plants, and they make them, they make it. Okay. And and so they use it very much in in a sacramental way. And then in 19, I think, 93 or thereabouts, uh, they incorporated a chapter in the United States called uh, in Santa Fe. They incorporated a U.S. chapter, incorporated as a church, and everything was fine. They were practicing uh, their religion. And then in uh, the summer of 1999, if I recall, they were raided by the uh, by the DEA mm-hmm. and their their uh, sacrament was seized, about 50 gallons of it, and Richard, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I I don't believe anyone was charged. They just seized it, and they said, well, you know, you might be charged with distributing a a controlled substance. The the crux of that is that of these plants, one of the components contains DMT. The plants themselves are not illegal. 
but DMT is a controlled substance, uh, a controlled right. Schedule One substance, which happens to occur in all of our brains, by the way. That's right, and everywhere else, it's in thousands of plants, <laughs> right. hundreds that we know of, and probably thousands more that we don't. Um, but it was the UDV that actually sued the government uh, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, as it turned out, and basically said, you know, give us our give us our sacrament back. You have no right to interfere with this. And that started this legal proceeding that uh, that ended up in the Supreme Court. So that's the sort of the ethnobotanical side of it. Uh, Richard can tell you much better than I about the legal ins and outs about it. Please do, Richard. Well, the, 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 the good news is the outcome of the case, which um, was decided... Well, I can't. I can't. Was it, I would guess it was earlier this year. In February. In February, mm-hmm. um, was a victory for the for the um, church members, which is relatively mm-hmm. unheard of um, in American law to have a, a religious defense in a way worth to to a drug case. But that's key in this situation, as Dennis mentioned, that the church didn't. When this was seized by customs, when the tea was seized by customs and shown to contain. The, the Schedule One drug DMT, the church didn't sit there and kind of you know hum and haw until the government came knocking with a with a criminal um, complaint. What they did is they actually sued the government, and that um, changes a lot of the way that the burden of proof works in a legal system, and it also just changes the underlying way that judges see the parties in the case, and so. Um, based on a law that was passed in 1993, the church argued that the continued retention, the continued detention of their tea by the government was impinging upon their religious freedoms as recognized in this, this law in 1993. Mm-hmm. And for a number of reasons which are very kind of narrow and particular to the church, for instance, the fact that there's only about 130 members in the United States at this point, and the fact that the drug is um, a very esoteric drug, um, ayahuasca, or the church calls it huasca, um, it's certainly not a drug that's contributing to any of the ills of that are typically part of the government rhetoric against drugs. Right, not a lot of money involved in it for anyone. I don't know if there's any money to speak of. <laughs> not for um, the UTV, I don't think, yeah. And um, for sort of these reasons and a few others, the court in this case felt pretty confident saying, hey, you know what, these people have a right to do this. They're not harming anybody else. And I think key to this was that one of the issues the government brought up was they're harming themselves. These guys are taking a drug that's very dangerous. And I think it was, by and large, Dennis's work in this, which he has been doing for, I don't know how long, two decades, I I think. Three, four. Uh, More like four. Four decades on, on ayahuasca that... You know, at a time when, A, this was very, not very many people knew about this, but, B, there's political implications for him as a scientist to be working on something like this. But because he kind of pushed on through and and did this work, there was actually some studies and evidence that the church was able to bring forward that showed that it wasn't, that that, that there wasn't any clear evidence, or at least the evidence, evidence was in balance, 
between whether this was actually causing them any harm or actually doing them any good physically. Yeah, and so the maybe, court, maybe I could speak yeah. to that a little bit, Richard. Um, yeah, um, I, I'm not taking credit for this because there was a, a large team of people that worked on this, but but we had a track record with the UDV because in 1993 uh, I was invited and my colleagues were invited by them they held a conference in Sao Paulo in 1991 to which we were invited and and basically they sprung on us the notion that they wanted to do a biomedical study of of ayahuasca and uh, they had uh, a scientific agenda they were actually curious about it but they also had a political agenda because at the time they were negotiating with the Brazilian regulatory agencies, the, an agency called CONFIN, which is kind of a combination of the DEA and the FDA. They handle, in Brazil, both the illegal drugs and the, the medicinal drugs. And they were trying to convince CONFIN that it was okay, that it wasn't a health problem or a drug abuse problem. So they needed some outside investigators, uh, preferably some some Americans, to come in and do a biomedical study. Mm -hmm. So they were basically willing to throw the whole thing open to us and let us come in and mm. do whatever we wanted to do, do EEG, do blood samples, do, you know, psychological screening, mm, so valuable stuff psychiatric evaluations and all this stuff. So we did that and published that. There's been a number of papers that have come out, but the bottom line was that you know there was no evidence that uh, the drug was harmful to uh, all of our subjects had been in the UTV at least 10 years, which means that they'd been taking ayahuasca on average, or wasca as they call it, on average once every two weeks. We did psychological testing. We found they actually performed better and the control group on, you know, tests for verbal recall and memory and cognitive functions and personality traits and all this stuff. No evidence of physical harm. So there was, in a sense, it wasn't a clinical study. It was an observational study. But there was this body of data that showed that, you know, not only is the drug not harmful, it was probably very helpful to this group in the context in which they used it. Because probably the most telling thing from, from our point of view, a lot of these people who had joined the UDV were pretty dysfunctional when they joined. Alcoholism, drug abuse, domestic violence, all this kind of stuff, which is actually fairly common in Brazilian society, uh, I guess any society. And but it had turned everybody around. I mean, they were so straight-laced, they didn't even use tobacco. Um, and so they all felt that, you know, it was, it, was, it was very good for them. It saved them. Hard to separate that variable from the context in which it's used. But anyway, that was their perception. So we were able to, or we, I was... I was on the sidelines in this case. I was an advisor behind the scenes, but my colleague, especially Charles Grobe, you know, did testify quite a bit before the uh, before the judges trying this case. So we were able to sort of trot this body of data forward, and and we were able to say, 
there's no evidence that it's right. physically harmful. Dennis, was, was was there any historical evidence brought forward? In other words, the the the, the long term use of these things, you know, via shamanism and, and those sort of traditions. Well, I mean, that body of data is out there, uh, but we didn't use that much okay. in the case because we had the data for the UDV. Right. And the way they use it is so different than the shamanic use. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's almost like, I mean, they are the same drug, but the context of their use is so different. It's its very much like uh, the Native American church. Okay. All right. Um, Richard, really quickly, what's it mean? What's the decision mean? Oh, that's a good question. I, it, uh, it depends. For people who are use use. Things, well, pe anybody who's not in the UDV, it, anyway. it, it means that... <laughs> Join the UDV. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this is a narrow decision on, decided on its facts, and so it really protects those people, and, and there's no way to expand this. You, you, you'd have to do a lot of work to expand it, and I think that mm -hmm. will have to be done gradually. Let's say for let's say a Rastafarian, they're going to have a big uphill battle even with this, this decision to argue that they ought to be able to use cannabis for religious purposes, primarily because everything is kind of inverted for, for something like marijuana, where it's, if this ayahuasca is an esoteric drug, marijuana is something that's widespread. Mm. You know, the UDV had 130 members in the U.S. Uh, I wonder, though, Richard, something yeah. that, that I've wondered about now, now with this decision in place, it should be fairly easy or the Santo Daime to come along and say, we're a legitimate religion. We've been around even longer than the UDV, and we have even more members in Brazil. What they don't have in the States, there are a lot of Daime, you know, cults or a lot of members of the Daime in the States, in, in different parts of the States, but they don't seem to have quite the same organizational uh, you know, infrastructure that the UDV does. Yeah, well, I agree. I think that but they would be the next in line to kind of expand this just a little bit more to cover their members. I think there's going you would to be. I think they'd be preparing the case. But... Well, I mean, there, you know, there was the political um, issues involved, even in this case, where the Santo Daime wanted to be have a, a greater voice in the case and were, right. in some sense, pushed to the side. Right. Um, and that's just the way that these cases work. It is le legally, it doesn't make sense for the, the UDV members to want to argue a principle any broader than necessary to protect themselves. Sure. But, you know, yes, I agree that now the, the Santo Dime should, should come along and make their arguments, and I think that there will be a progression where other um, individuals and also organizations try to um, go in the same direction, and it will be interesting to see what the court does. It's definitely definitely opened the door from where it was prior to this case. I mean, the last case that the U.S. Supreme Court decided that involved the religious use of uh, entheogenic drug was the Smith case in 1990, which was a horrible, horrible case that that I'm not being hyperbolic when I say it. It, it literally destroyed freedom of religion as it's protected in the Constitution. Wow. But but yeah. isn't that why the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was actually passed? Exactly. So that that's what led to the, in 19, 1993 the passage of the law that the UDV was able to um, gain its protections under. 
So, so any argument from here on isn't about the First Amendment because that's been canned or put on hold until the court somehow works its way around to, to, to making a different holding on that. And instead, it's brought under this statute. And, and arguments that are fundamental, like the right to practice your religion, while you're going to use anything you can to argue it, and you know, a federal statute's a pretty good thing, it's still not as good as being able to argue under the United States Constitution, where I think mm-hmm. is the right place for this right to be kind of articulated and protected. But so what it means for others is we'll have to wait and see. It's, there's a light now, now that's outshining, and it's going to take other people to sort of be able to step into it to see, you know, for sure what's, what, what the future will hold in this area. But people shouldn't, I mean, what I'm getting from what you're saying is you can't go out and found an ad hoc religion. It's it's not going to get you anywhere if you, you know, suddenly find the first church of methadrine or something. That's exactly right. It's a tough, it's a really a tough thing because the, the whole, there, there isn't, Theoretically, under the principles of our laws, our freedom of religion isn't supposed to depend on whether you're a member of a a thousand-year-old religion or a very modern religion that was just founded. There's many prophets that have come along, and and these people are entitled to their protections. But in this area, when you bring up drugs and religion, it's a touchy, it's a really touchy area. My theory is that it's partly because um, the What's called the war on drugs is, is, like Dennis was saying earlier, really a war on the way that people think. And and I would go further to say it's actually a religious war itself. Mm -hmm. And when you when you look at the way the laws are, the the theory of the law, the law is about it's an exoteric system in which the truth is determined by going out and consulting a book. You go out and read the codes, you Mm -hmm. read the Constitution. That's, that's identical in its methodology to, you know, these book-based religions where you consult the Bible to know what the truth is. <laughs> and and that, that may be one thing that helped the UDV yeah. in this in this case because they are definitely a highly structured, hierarchical, top-down organization. They have a doctrine. They have books. They have a certain you know, thing you have to do to be a member in good standing. You have to study the doctrine. And if you want to advance in the organization, you have to go through levels. Just like any other, you know, um, well, any formal religion. I mean, they are a formal religion under every sense of the word. The the I think that's a, a super important point. One of the things that courts have done over the last 70 years when they've been in the American system, looking at this issue of drugs and religion, is whenever they want to decide against the person who is using this or that drug, what they'll do is they'll characterize that person's use of the drug not as a religion. They'll say, this isn't a religion. What this is is your personal philosophy. And a personal philosophy isn't entitled to First Amendment protections. And so so I think the UDV... There wasn't any doubt. Nobody could contest the fact that, hey, this this is a religion. It looks like a religion. It follows all the typical rules of how the, the law thinks of a religion. And that issue, which is a big one in a lot of these cases, just wasn't there for the government to try and exploit. All right, you guys, look, uh, let me do a quick ID here. It's KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guests are Dr. Dennis McKenna. 
and uh, Richard Glenn Boyer. And you can find information about all of us on the web at www.mikehagan.com. And uh, let's continue. You guys, we've got a whole bunch of people chomping at the bit here. And uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and bring in some of our, uh, our guests in the studio here. Right now we've got a young man whose name is Jesse. And so, Jesse, I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Dennis and uh, to Richard. Ah, yes, yes. And uh, Dennis and Richard, thank you very, very much for, for gracing us with your presence. I'm glad um, to be here, <laughs> wherever here is. <laughs> it's, everywhere, it's everywhere tonight, Dennis. It's right, everywhere. so it is. <laughs> no, no, I, and I, I was recruited by, by Mike to um, ask some pertinent questions. And uh, earlier this evening, I was actually watching network TV. Uh, I won't say which network, but I, I, there's this constant parade of ads from pharmaceutical companies, uh, one after the other, uh, trying to sell you on drugs to treat anything, everything. Uh, from from chronic constipation to acid reflux to PMS, anything. To man problems. Treating 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 the symptoms and not the root of the problem itself. Now, maybe you guys can clarify this. I have heard, and I'm sorry I haven't done uh, more research on this topic, but uh, ayahuasca has, it, correct me if I'm wrong, been used quite successfully um, and adopted by, I, I, I believe, the Venezuelan government and a couple other places to treat uh, chronic alcoholism and um, opium and, and heroin addiction with, with quite a huge success rate. Um, well, yes and no. Um, I think it's Peru. Um, Peru. I, there's not a lot of ayahuasca going on, but in Peru is sort of the hotbed of the shamanic use. And there are a couple of clinics in Peru that are using uh, ayahuasca to treat uh, alcoholism and cocaine addiction and that sort of thing. Um a place called Takiwasi, uh, run by a physician named uh, Jacques Mabit, a French guy, is kind of at the cutting edge of all that work. Um, if you look at, you know, in our UDV study, if you look at these folks that we studied, uh, these 15 men, um, they all we did structured psychiatric interviews with them, and they all basically told the same story, which was that they were either alcoholics or drug addicts mm -hmm. or both. And when they joined the UDV, they had their initial experiences were quite terrifying, but they basically turned them around, and they sort of saw where their lives were going, and they determined to change, and and they did so successfully. Um, you know what's lacking here, in a way, is that you know this. These are real-world situations. We didn't do a clinical trial, uh, and it wasn't a clinical trial in the sense that clinical trials are done here. For a long time, I've argued that we really need to do a clinical trial. We need to. We need to. You know, jump through all these regulatory hoops. Are, are there are there any concrete numbers on on uh, how what the success rate is with this sort of therapy and this sort of treatment with ayahuasca? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, that's the thing. That's what's lacking. There aren't con there aren't concrete numbers. There are no well controlled 
trials. And so what there is is rumor and anecdote and, and you know, not to be dismissed. I think that it probably is very good, you know, in the right context for doing that. But what there's what is lacking is any kind of, you know, definitive clinical study that mainstream medicine would accept. And, you know, for a long time I was advocating that we should do this, that, that you know, we should try and get a clinical study going in the United States specifically to treat alcoholism because that seemed like the most obvious, you know, first application. I've sort of come away from that notion, actually. I, yeah, I, we, talk, we talked about that last time you were on the air, Dennis. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, maybe it's partly a result of beating my head against the wall for five years and getting nowhere with the government. In order to initiate a clinical trial in this country, you have to do what's with an experimental drug. You have to file an IND, right. what's called an investigational new drug application, and you have to meet certain criteria. Well, the fact that ayahuasca is, number one, a controlled substance, which they really is, is don't it like a schedule, to... Is it a Schedule One? right well, now? DMT, well, DMT is. DMT. Uh, is, that, is that analogous? Is that part of the analogous? DMT is in it. That's the, that's, that's, DMT that's the active agent. Oh, okay, okay. And the question of whether the plants are illegal because DMT is in one of the plants is is up for grabs. I maintain they're not. They never have been, mm-hmm. but I'm sure others would disagree with me. Uh, you know, but we... You know, I mean, I mean, the thing is, it, it's a it's a scheduled substance, and it's a botanical preparation, and those are kind of two things that the FDA really hates to deal with. They don't like botanical drugs, and they certainly don't like botanical drugs containing controlled substances. Uh, so the bar is really high to get an IND approved. Right. Uh, both Dennis and Richard, this is. Uh, relevant here. There's a, there's a note that just came across on the uh, on the chat room, and a gentleman says, uh, Richard Boyer, could we com- uh, could you please comment on if we could bring a case against the U.S. government about the molecule dimethyltryptamine in every human's brain? In other words, uh, you know, even the judges are carrying, you know. Yeah, that's fascinating idea. The it, that's something that I've kind of thought around the edges about and haven't focused too much on. The way that the laws, it's a kind of a, a tricky thing because right now there are laws that outlaw the possession of certain drugs, and there are also laws that outlaw the use of certain drugs, and there are laws that outlaw being under the influence of certain drugs. And right now, um Possession. You're violating all of those. Things. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big party. Everybody is. Oh Everyone is. Oh my gosh! How crazy is this world? But but there are little wrinkles to each one of those um, offenses that kind of um, fall apart or don't really apply to endogenous drugs. Mm. I mean, made in your own body. So it's. I think that would be something that would be a little too smart for the courts to kind of grapple with. <laughs> they couldn't get it, huh? Yeah, I think there's a better argument. Um, like Dennis did some consulting on the UDV case. I did some early on also, and my little piece of the puzzle was to, to put together the argument that 
ayahuasca wasn't a scheduled substance because it's just not scheduled, and neither are the two plants that make it. And so that argument was put together and tried very in the the, the federal district court, and that court rejected the argument. Hmm. But um, I think it's a valid argument, and the that's like kind of a one area that I think will get further play depending on what happens in this case and other cases. And the other thing that Dennis was saying, that, or the other thing that came to mind while Dennis was talking was that the, the one of the things I find frustrating about the way that our system's designed to control drugs is that it only examines a drug through the lens of, of its medical use, whereas up until, I don't know, the last hundred years, Every society, all people had recognized, I think, that drugs aren't just medicines, but they have many, many other uses. And yet our society has decided that this is the one and only use, and if you can't prove a drug's efficacy and safety with respect to its its identity as a medicine, then it can't possibly become any kind of legitimate um, part of our society. And I think that's something that um, in the long term should be should change. And and I think that's going to change. I think it is changing. And I think that probably the pharmaceutical industry is going to lead the charge Mm -hmm. in some ways because they perceive, I mean, where do you cross the line between remediation uh, or amelioration of some condition and enhancement? That, I, I, I agree with you. I think that, that, that also the driver for something like that is monetary and that the, the pharmaceutical companies will realize, that I'm sure they have already, no doubt that they have, that you know, why do they want to participate in a market structure in which their only customers are the percentage of Americans or, or others who are actually been diagnosed uh, with some illness. When yeah, in fact, yeah. if they can break that barrier and market something to the other ninety percent, the other ninety percent of us, then <laughs> hey, if, if there's a buck uh-huh. to be made, you can be sure that uh, yeah. will be changed. Of course, of course. I mean, it's already happened. Yeah. I mean, I think Viagra and, and these sorts of things are all are good examples. I mean, you can't tell me that forty percent of the male population of the country has erectile dysfunction. <laughs> You know, I think we're in trouble if they do. <laughs> you know, so uh, this is a lifestyle drug. Wow. I mean, it's it's purely and simply a lifestyle drug, and the pharmaceutical industry has become very creative at making up diseases. Making up yeah. diseases. Yes, they will invent a drug, and then the syndrome to that the drug treats is soon to follow. And I think I, I think that pretext is only going to be only be around for so much longer. For instance, modafinil. The, Mm-hmm. What's one that? Of the interesting, it's um, well, I don't know the pharmacology, but Dennis can speak to that. But, but the the quick point I want to make is that when that drug first came out, it was okayed by the FDA for treating narcolepsy. Right. And then they expanded that. I guess it was last year sometime to treat a a disease that they created. I think called um, shift worker sleep disorder. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, I got that. I think you guys. It's uh, what is it, twelve fifteen? Oh my god! Oh man! Yeah. Well, so, so uh, amazing. That's, amazing. that's definitely true. They're expanding these applications for these things. Wow. You know, they they're very creative at, at thinking up. Well, or just look at SSRIs. I mean, hmm. SSRIs originally 
were pretty much for depression. Dennis, for the people who don't know what the acronym the, is. The Prozac-type antidepressants, mm-hmm. the so-called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, okay. what that stands for. And originally they were brought out as to treat depression, but now they're being used to treat depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, sometimes even uh, to help people quit smoking, all sorts of other things. All right, you guys, uh, it is quarter after 12. We're going to take another break. We'll come back. We've got a question from Bob. We've got Kyle, but we'll go age before beauty. And then, uh, but Mandy, who's the lovely young lady in here with us, if she's ready to talk, we'll, we'll, bring, in her, uh, we'll bring her in as well. So anyway, okay. uh, Dennis and, uh, and Richard, thanks. You guys stick around. We'll have some more music here that will keep you awake, okay? All right. All right, you guys, uh, as I said, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia. We're streaming live at CosmicWavesRadio.com. You can also check all of us out on the web at MikeHagan.com. Dennis and Richard, all of their information can be accessed through my site, and uh, as well as this band that you're going to hear right now. They're called Ism, and uh, I like them. I ran into them about a week and a half ago at the Blue Fugue, and uh, they sent me their CD. And this is the title track from uh, this new recording. It's called Monkey Underneath. And uh, listen to this. Great song. Great stuff. Great message. And... uh, Good stuff for this evening's conversation. This is Mike to listen to Radio Orbit. Check out ISM on the web at ismmusic.com. And uh, one more time for us at mikehagan.com.
All right, Monkey Underneath. One more time, that's ISM. And uh, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guests are Richard Glenn Bohr and Dr. Dennis McKenna. We're having an interesting conversation about drug laws and uh, pharmacology and technology. And uh, Let's get back to it here. So, uh, guys, first, thanks for sticking around with us. I'm happy to be here. We're still hanging. All right, I know. All right, Dennis, you're no old geezer. You told me you're an old geezer, and I'm you're no old geezer. You're, you're, you'll, you'll be up all night, I think. So. Older than you. Well, you know, <laughs> everyone else here is younger than me. Actually, no, we got we got people older than you here too. We got we got Bob, who's gonna who's gonna uh, talk next. All right, look, we're all talking age. How old are you, Bob? Oh, hold on. I should turn on your damn microphone. All right. There you go. Yeah, I'm almost 70. I'm almost 70. So, Bob Bolt. Okay, and you're still awake. That's good. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm revving. Got the coffee going. You know. All right, Bob, you got a question for, for Richard or Dennis? Yeah, actually, this is a little more for Richard. Uh, I'm curious as to how optimistic you are about our chance of actually affecting change socially, politically for cognitive liberty. If so, where... Where do we, you know, the people, uh, where do we fit into this? What kind of political activity? Where do we direct our efforts or something? Yeah, yeah, in terms of activism. That's a great question, and actually my thinking on it is totally dependent on my neurochemistry at any given moment. There's <laughs> times where I am, I think it's going to happen in the next instant, mm. and then there's times which tend to actually be longer in, in duration where... I'm very pessimistic about it. Um, so right now I'm kind of on a little bit of an uptick because of the, the UDV decision. And how, how it's going to come about is a really tough, a tough um, I, I, I kind of, part of when, when the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics was really running strong in 2000, 2001, 2002, there was, you know, people who want to do campus organizations that were going to, you know, educate people and help think these things out. And there was activists who were getting in the streets and putting up posters that said, you know, give me my cognitive liberty. And, you know, I just kind of felt myself to be incompetent at at designing social change or movements or anything on, on that order. And so I've, I'm afraid that I don't I, – I think it's – you know, you have to do anything you can do, but how it's going to happen or what's going to lead to the putting the, the point on this thing is kind of, I think, anybody's guess. And it may be that the change in this area, on one hand, I think it's going to come about gradual. You know, everybody's doing their part, and little by little it, it, it changes. And then on the other hand, I kind of have another part of myself that thinks that it's going to come about much more like a kaleidoscope in the in the way that uh, something may bump this system and a whole other pattern just pops into existence. Um, you know that that's that's happened in other times in the legal system, and it may happen here if there's a, a new drug that's developed or a different technology. That, uh, like for instance, one thing could be that if if somebody figured out a way, and this is just wild thinking, but if somebody figured, just like Dennis was saying, that DMT is everywhere and and a lot of these other drugs are are also everywhere, although they're scheduled. You know, what if somebody was able to create something like a common grass or a weed that could produce THC or some other commonly used scheduled drug? I think that something like that would, a technological change like that could immediately change the way that the government perceives its 
ability to control these things. And nothing, no one can really predict that, although mm-hmm. I'm, I'm told people are working on that. I'm sure they are. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting that, um, that you should come up with that idea. It, it's not only about drugs. Uh, you know, they, all of these issues go way beyond drugs, but a lot of it, a lot of these issues have focused on drugs because, you know, that's sort of the crux in a way of this cognitive liberty thing. You know, we're, we're talking in some sense about people's right to form alliances with plants. And um, partly I would say that's my answer mm. to this. In the sen- I mean, it's interesting while, you know, this whole process was going on with the UDV and the Supreme Court, at the same time, people are free to, or DMT is in all kinds of plants. Right. Beta-carbolines right. are in all kinds of plants. Right. I mean, that technology... The idea of you know, introducing the gene for, say, DMT into a common grass, I mean, the common grass is already out there. There's right, that, you know, that thousands of, uh, potentially, there are hundreds of plants that contain DMT that mm. we know about, and there's, that's only because people have bothered to look. So, in fact, there are probably thousands. And... Uh, that's one of the ways that we can fight back, I think. I mean, I think it's interesting. We can enlist the plants almost as allies in this fight for cognitive liberty. That's right, Dennis. Um, you know, we're free, and, and we, and it's, it's almost like a slow kind of bioterrorism. You know, although I don't like the term terrorism because we're not terrorizing anybody. We're not killing anybody, hmm. unlike the dominator government, but, you know, we can fight back that way. We don't have to create huge infrastructures and cartels for manufacture and distribution of pharmaceutical drugs. We can simply, over generations, propagate plants, exchange plants, Hmm. give them to your friends, give Hmm. seeds away, you know, transmit the knowledge of how to prepare these things and how to use them in a... a, uh, you know, in a, in a good life-affirming way. And I think gradually you can reach out to hearts and minds and you can actually change societies that way. But it's a slow process. You know, it, it works itself out over generations, not in a few years. You know, Dennis, you said to me one time in an email when I was frustrated about a decision that had been uh, made in a court actually in England with, with regard to uh, the psilocybin uh, with uh, uh, Strafaria cubensis, Right. And uh, you said, well, Mike, they've got all the media and they've got the guns and they've got the power and the money, but we've got the plants. We've got the plants. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, it, the pla- and that makes all the difference. You're damn right it does. And so, yeah. All right, uh, Bob, I think, has a follow-up and just here. Another thing that makes me very optimistic about it is the, the concept of the Internet, which has given a whole power to sort of micro, uh, you know, Micro demographics, I guess you would say it, where, where there's a real attempt now to control the internet and to uh, you know they ain't the controlling us, baby. We're well, doing it right now. But the way, but the way they did with broadcasting, you know, they they really destroyed broadcasting in many right. respects. I mean, like uh, KLPN is a little island of, you know, of sanity in this whole sea of commercialism. 
But the internet, I think it resists the, uh, the temptation or the resists the, the power structure to uh, desire to control it because as soon as they find some way to control it, people sort of revolve around it. It's like a wonderful virus or something. It's like a brain. It's like a neural network. Yeah, and what, what Dennis said about the, you know, developing these alternative networks for distribution and for understanding that sort of thing, this is kind of stuff that can get slipping under the radar of uh, the attempts to control it. So that's a very optimistic thing. I'm happy to have heard yeah, that. Yeah, it, it's, it is. It's an optimistic view, but it's also a view that calls for or patience, I think. You have to take the long term. I mean, people have always had these alliances with plants. So that goes back as far as you care to look back, you know, and governments come and go, laws come and go, civilizations rise and fall, but people maintain their relationship with nature. Uh, you know, the thing that worries me a little bit is that you know, the, the entrenched power structures have become so powerful and so destructive, we now actually have to worry about the destruction of nature. Yeah. You know, and if they get that going, well, we won't have to worry about much of anything. <laughs> All right, Dennis, thanks. Okay, let's see. Kyle, over here in the corner, my hey, friend uh, Kyle. Kyle Cook. Uh, I'm just a, a curious... Whoa, 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 hold on. I, I did it again. Uh-oh. i got to turn the mic on there. Hello. All right, there we go. This is Kyle Hi. and uh, Dennis uh, and Richard. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you guys for being with us. Um, I'm only 21 years of age, so I'm not. I'm kind of ill-informed compared to everyone else. But, you know, you got to start somewhere. Uh, my first kind of unanswerable question is uh, you're, you're talking about the dominating government, and we have been a lot. And, it, and I think we can agree that most of the people who make the decisions – uh, as far as what we can and can't do are the same ones who agree that uh, God created this entire earth that we live on, our universe. And my, question, my first question is, did God make a mistake putting all these things all over the planet for us to find? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and my second question is, how successful would the war on drugs be if we called it the war on nature? <laughs> But uh, kind of a real question for either one of you. No more rhetorical questions. (laughs) I got to bring bring it all down to earth for a second here because these are the things that come into my brain. But anyways, uh, as far as pharmaceutical companies and lobbyists go, um, how much money gets poured into campaigns from these pharmaceutical companies and how does that influence decisions on what, is legal and illegal, and if that does influence to a greater degree, why is lobbying legal? Richard. (laughs) (laughs) Richard. You're welcome, Dennis. Yeah, that's... (laughs) No, I've had my say. (laughs) Weigh in on that. I I don't know the numbers, but there's no question that pharmaceutical companies are powerful politically. What the numbers are, who knows? But... but, um, Huge. Yeah, there's no question about that. That's why I think that if, if, it's, if, the, if, the, if the so-called battle is framed and only framed as it's the, the, the plants versus the pharmaceutical companies, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a tough fight. Oh, man. If, if, though, the pharmaceutical companies come to see some interests that are in parallel with what the plant people also see, then we've got you know, a battering ram that's going to come through the door of the White House. Um, mm. But, I, I, you know, it's, it's those are kind of questions where, like you said when you spoke to them, they can't 
really, I certainly can't answer them. And the war on drugs is, as you mentioned, a war on nature, not just nature, um, you know, the plants and the trees and the animals, but human nature. Right. Again, back to cognitive liberty, Richard. And and so it's um, th- this is what the government's been very successful about is you know when they when when they talk about the war on drugs people don't question that rhetoric and instead lap it up when in fact it's it, it's it's similar to saying that the war on censure that that banning books and and the attempt to suppress ideas in print that that was that that was not a war on paper and ink it, it, and nobody would have fallen for that. People would have said, "Bullshit! This is a that's a war on trying to stop me from reading other thoughts and getting different ideas that the right. government, right. for some reason, is afraid of." Hmm. And I think it's the same thing with with the so-called war on drugs. That's a misnomer. It's a complete red herring that gets people focused on these little pills and plants and powders. When what's really at stake here is what form of consciousness are you permitted to have, and who is going to say? what's right and what's wrong, and in, in, in a way kind of build like a Berlin Wall that's inside your mind, and you cannot go to beyond it. Right. And, and I think that that's, you know, that's what, we're, what, what is being faced here, and getting people, I think, to kind of back up or walk beyond the, the way that the government has framed this and using you know, millions of dollars and, and media power, they've, they've been able to do this very successfully, but I, I think that the Internet is a hope, and, and, and in small ways, this kind of knowledge of these plants and what their potentials are and ways to use them has a remarkable staying power, and it's been passed from human to human over, over eons. Right, and, and like Dennis says, I think that, that clearly in the long run, it, it, it has to, if it doesn't win, then, then it's, it's darkness and doom. Hmm. But, uh, you know, how long that will take is... It's like kind of what the battle is about, I think, right? I now. mean, I think we can take heart in in fact in the fact that the war on drugs is a miserable failure. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, as some wag said, uh, the war on drugs uh, is over and drugs won. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dennis, you know, one of the funniest things uh, that was responded about the last time you were on the air with with Stephen Buner was you made this amazing comment about how essentially we are bags of drugs. We're just these enzymes. Yeah, we're made are, of drugs. Right. And so, and, and as we've been talking about tonight, many of them exist in our own metabolism, et cetera, et cetera, that are considered uh, illegal for, you know, for silly political reasons or whatever, but it's, it becomes outrageous. Uh, right. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it's part of the disinformation strategy of, of the dominators that they that they sort of demonize these completely I mean it's absurd to make a war on drugs you're not making a war on drugs wars are not waged on drugs any more than wars are waged against terror you know the whole concept is absurd there's no such thing as a war on terror terror is a tactic you can't wipe it out any more than you can you know, wipe out the entire spectrum of, of species. There, there's always a tendency to sort of to set up the to demonize these things. You know, drugs, terror, whatever. Wars are made on people, and the war on drugs is largely a war against our own citizens. You know, the war on terror is is 
a war of terror. Of terror, in a sense. I mean, not the terrorists. I'm not defending terrorists, but terrorists are people that have a beef for one reason or another, legitimate or not, and they choose that tactic because, in a lot of cases, no other no other recourse is open to them. It's a way of getting people's attention. Hmm. Maybe if we would spend more time wondering why are these people so pissed off <laughs> and what could we do to make them not so pissed <laughs> off, but that might actually be a solution. Right. You know, yeah. and, and I don't think that the government's really interested in a solution. Okay. They're interested okay. in perpetuating what some have called the military-industrial complex. You can add different things into the hyphenation, the military, prison, pharmaceutical, industrial complex. So, you know, it's all about entrenched power structures wanting to preserve their power and, uh, and rationalize it and, and sloganeering and this, you know, this war on drugs well, no, war on what drugs, right. which drugs. But again, it's, it's this use of language that is so uh, manipulative. Right. All right, look. It's um, called propaganda. That's right, it's propaganda. <laughs> it's, an old, uh, it's an old story. So, All right, look, here's one from the web, you guys. Uh, Richard, please ask Richard about the current state of subliminal mind control being used in various media, i.e. motion pictures, music, commercial advertising, etc. I am sure after all these years it has now been made a science. Well, I've looked into that a little bit. Um, there, there was a, uh, something back, I think it was, there was an actual attempt to use subliminal advertising to sway a presidential election. And there's evidence to this. I think it was in 2000, the 2000 election, when the Republicans ran a television ad hmm. that um, said, at one point it flashed the word Democrat. Or rat or something. Yeah, it? yeah and, it was the and word the rat. rat's part of this. <laughs> word was like clearly in there in a subliminal um, I remember, I remember. time you know frame um so you know whether that the the the, the, government, the republicans tried to say that that was just an editing mistake but it's hard to believe that that they miss a frame and that you know, of that sort but subliminal advertising i think i don't know a whole lot about there is a whole field now that's going on though called neuromarketing Huh. Where universities, in fact, are, are allocating some of their um, sophisticated brain imaging technologies to uh, examine the way that advertising affects your brain, and not just for you know, objective kind of uh, academic studies to, 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 to see how that works, but in fact to tune these things up. There's something called the Bright House Institute which uses university computers. I think it's at Emory. We have it on our website at mm-hmm. cognitiveliberty.org. Um, but they use some of these brainwave um, machines or, or actually magnetic imaging to try and see how advertisements can bypass the areas of the brain that I guess are associated with deliberative processes and it just gets straight to the what they call the buy button in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was talk about this actually in, in the last presidential election about possibly um, being able to tune up political advertisements or advertisements also to children. Hmm. There's some, you know, certain things where where this could clearly go into an area where I think the majority of people would raise their hands and, and 
sort of say that they felt a little uneasy with with what was going on there. Um, there's a lot of scary stuff, and, and it's it's one of those areas where I I don't like to talk about it too much without having plenty of time to put in little nuances because right. it can sound like a complete kook if you <laughs> well, talk about man. some of these things in just short little phrases. Well, you know, but, uh, but it's it's a good example. This type of use of the neuroimaging technology is a good example of. You know, here you've got a technology that's basically morally neutral. I mean, things are not, don't have moral qualities, but it has the potential to be put to use by people. They make a decision and then they follow that decision up with behavior. You know, it, it has the potential to be put to use that's, <clears throat> that's actually quite, quite malicious. Mm-hmm. But you shouldn't necessarily fault the technology, and I know you're not. It's, it's Absolutely. Yeah, no, right, yeah, how are these things going to be used? Right. You need some kind of an ethical compass here. Well, it, the, you know, the fact that you guys are, that, that, that we're talking about it is good. Richard, you, you remind me of this. There, there's a woman whose name is uh, Juliet Shore, and she's a professor at like either Boston College or University of Boston or something anyway, but she she's written a book that's called, uh, it's called Born to Buy, The Commercialization of Children. And, and and it's amazing. And I have a two-and-a-half-year-old son, so I'm sort of interested in this stuff. And, and I was blown away. This is a woman who came out of sort of an insider position from a, a large corporation as a marketing executive. And, uh, my God, what she, what she reports is, is uh, I'll tell you what, I mean, if you have children, it'll, it'll make you shake. Well, it's, it, there, it, like Dennis says, there's one technology that I think is incredible and exciting and nothing but cool in the abstract, and that's hypersonic sound. It's a, a, a way huh? of transmitting. Huh? It's a way of transmitting sound, um, which that's is kind right. of like a, an audio laser beam in a way, but really, really tight, so that mm. you can stand, you know, three feet outside of this beam and you hear nothing, but you walk into it mm. and it's high fidelity, very clear um, in your head music or whatever it is that they wanted to send. And what companies are doing now is um, I'm told that in Tokyo there have, there's Coke machines now that when you walk by them, they beam, in, beam into you know, your head, literally, the sound of, of ice dropping into a cup. And, and the then pop. the sound of the, of the Pepsi, you know, going oh popping open and glug, glug, glug. And, um, and it's you know, just you in no this zone. Or it's just in this zone or something in front of the machine. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's only in like about the three feet in <laughs> front of this machine, but there's no warning sign. There's, you know, oh it comes God. right into your head. And it's been used um, also for you know, as a type of crowd control, where they can project something, target somebody who's in the middle of the crowd, and tell them to you know step back or to, to do whatever they need to do. Um, so all these technologies, like Dennis says, drugs, everything have. Sort of their their good side or their not the good side or the bad side, but their the the application right, or right. and I think the way to tune that or to guide it at least one way that I'm spending time working on is by building back into this thing what we talked about at the beginning the idea of choice and and the right to either say yes or to say no and not have any of these things forced upon you nor to have any of these things taken away from you on threat of being a criminal if you use them, you know, without causing harm to other people. Right, so it's both sides. In other words, don't be, uh, don't be forced into using it, but also be allowed to do what you want with it. Well, that, that's why we have, like, the cognitive liberty would be, you know, be able to do what you want with your brain without causing harm to others. And there's also 
the concept of cognitive security, mm. which is oh, uh, being able yeah. to have that decision or the autonomy over what's going to be introduced into your brain or, or is going to be used to directly change how you think. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, those, those are the issues. It's really about choice. I mean, it's, it's about cognitive freedom, the the freedom not to have these things foisted on you. Or if you choose to alter consciousness, for example, with a drug, as long as, I mean, the key thing is, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, mm-hmm. you should be allowed to do that. But, you know, I've often wondered, or I'm beginning to wonder, you know, maybe Richard, myself, people like us, people in our generation, you know, maybe we're just 19th century old fogies, <laughs> and this notion of privacy and the notion that, you know, uh, the state shouldn't have complete access to every thought, maybe these are just outmoded ideas. And a hundred years from now, people will look back and say, my God, those people were just dinosaurs, you know, of course. You know, we're completely wired in in a total telepathic communication at all times. And and uh, the notion of privacy is just some quaint 19th century idea that will be swept away. Hmm. I have no doubt that's, that's going to be the case, and I think about that all the time. The reason I still argue for the notion of privacy in, with respect to the kind of stuff we're talking about is... It works for what I'm. What I see is the way I want to change policy. Number one and number two, the our society, our legal system is built on what are clearly outmoded notions of the individual from the Enlightenment period, and but those have been built into the Constitution. And so, right. if I'm a constitutionalist and and you know a lawyer in court, that's what I'm going to be arguing. And so, until they change the Constitution and radically update it. Um, these are some of the notions we kind of actually have on our side, if you want to sort of do it in that bifurcated way, to make the points we want to make. But ultimately, I I agree. I think privacy is a notion that's gone. But I don't think the idea of consent is going to go away in any near time. And that would mean that, you know, you, you, have, you, you have free will and, and a certain degree of agency to jack into these different networks. I think in the future, and again, it may not be privacy that is what you will argue in the future, but I think you will still have a position that's legitimate to say, hey, you know what, I want to opt out for a little while, I want to opt in, Mm. and that just may be something to do with just, again, the agency or or consent that will be recognized hopefully in the future. Look, uh, you guys, it is about uh, 13 minutes before 1 o'clock, so here's the question, if... if, uh, if you're gonna, if we're gonna bail out at at uh, the top of the hour, then I'll then I won't take a break here, and we'll talk for ten more minutes. Um, if you'd like to stick around even for a few more minutes, maybe till quarter after, uh, we'll take a break here, and then we can come back and uh, and take a couple more questions from some people here. Well, so up, I, up to I you, though, fully up to you. Well, let's hang in. Richard? I'm good. My only concern is I'm on a um, battery-powered phone that uh. I, I'm thinking I'm surprised is actually held out as long as it has so that's i'm good until that thing decides to turn itself off okay no problem then we'll 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 take a break here but we'll make it a short one okay and uh let's see this is uh 
Number eight. This is a song that is called uh, No More. All right. Fitting, I think. All right. No More. This is ISM. And uh, you can find out information from them as well as uh, Dr. Dennis and Richard Glenn Boyer on my website at www.mikehagan.com. Back in just a minute with them and uh, more of your questions. There you have it. 
Ism. This is Mike Hayden. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guests are Dr. Dennis McKenna and Richard Glenn Boyer. And uh, they've been uh, generous enough with their time to spend uh, going on two hours here with us. So we're going to get right back here to them. And we have another question from Bob, who's in the studio with us here. And I've got a couple more on the web as well. So, Bob, what do you uh, have for uh, for the guys? Well, this might be something a little more related to something that Dennis is involved in. The war on drugs, it's kind of like we're talking about two different categories. One I, I would refer to as sort of the body drugs, alcohol, meth, tobacco, caffeine, heroin, cocaine, that sort of thing. Sugar, coffee. Versus the psychedelics, yeah. You're, but you're, you know, we're sort of talking about psychedelics here and the freedom to be able to explore mentally using these uh, psychoactive substances. But there's a whole problem. I mean, like we're... We're in mid-Missouri. There's like a, a methamphetamine man, epidemic man. here. I mean, these guys are, you know, in these little trailers cooking up this stuff with kids running around and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And clearly something has to be done to regulate it. I mean, I'm basically libertarian. I think if somebody wants to totally screw with their system, that's their business, and the government should keep their nose out of it. But you're going to find a lot of people that are saying, we've got to have a war on drugs because blah, 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 you know. Well, yeah, I, I'm not to, I'm not advocating that drugs should just be completely unregulated. Right. You know, I don't think that's practical, and, and that gets back to that issue about harm to others, uh, you know, like the kids that are around the meth labs and that sort of thing. You know, I think you have to you have to regulate them in some sense. Um, I, don't, I just don't think, you know... I, but but the whole concept of a war on drugs is misinformed. You know, if you look at, I mean, like I sometimes tell my students, you know, there's no such thing as a bad drug, you know, but human behavior with respect to drugs can be very bad. And what we're really talking about is regulating human behavior. And I, I think... And Dennis, you could substitute technology for the word drugs. Exactly. Well, drugs are a kind of technology. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah. all about human behavior. And, and I think with respect to something like methamphetamine, which is, it's a drug that's very hard to form a positive relationship with. I mean, there may be people that... <laughs> well, that's do a nice it. way to put it. Yeah, but that's really what it is. There may be people that are able to do that, but they're few and far between. So, you know, what about, what if we were to legalize meth and make it a, I mean, just pick the worst drug you can imagine, okay, meth. What if we were to legalize it and make it a prescription drug? Then people that wanted to shoot meth, they would have to go to a doctor and get a prescription. Every time they got their prescription, they basically have to have a conversation with a healthcare provider who would have an opportunity to say, well, you know, maybe you should rethink this. Do you really want to shoot crank? And they can talk about all the reasons maybe why they, why that's not a good idea. And if the person says, yeah, doc, you know, I really want to shoot crank. Okay, here's your prescription. You know, but then they have to go back the next time and have that conversation again. So you create opportunities to basically intervene in a sense not by preventing them from doing it but by informing them that maybe there are better choices they could be making i think that would be uh you know a a more humane way to approach it and probably it would work better 
I mean, what the situation that works now, it's just the, you know, you have the total punishment model, no opportunity to educate people that maybe this isn't a good idea, Hmm. you know. I I really believe in education over coercion. Uh, That's the way to get people to make good choices. All right, I agree. All right, good. Uh, Richard, before your phone runs out, uh, let's see, where was it? Ah, yes, uh, a gentleman asked, tell us a little about the Human Enhancement and Human Rights Conference from May 26th at Stanford, uh, and maybe you and Dennis can talk a little about that for a minute. Oh, sure, that's um, a conference that the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics is um, sponsoring along with Stanford's, um, uh, not the law school, well, it's at the Stanford Law School, but it's being sponsored by another organization at Stanford and also the Institute for um, Ethics and Emerging Technologies. And the idea of the conference is to actually begin some kind of high-level scholarly discussion and critique of the idea of human rights related to um, human enhancement drugs. Um, So we've got people who are everything from medical, you know, PhDs and, and other people in the sciences to... Um, law professors to rhetoric professors, anybody who's got something to say and is willing to kind of, you know, have other people pull them apart for three days at this conference about it is going to be there discussing this. And, and I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to um, spawn a lot of scholarly work in this area. And, and that actually, as much as academics kind of get a bad rap for being in there, the library towers. Mm-hmm. In the law, that sometimes boils down to real change. And, um, you know, again, that's kind of like my little contribution in this area is trying to think through the, the way that the law might just uh, evolve in this area. So the conference is going to, I hope, be a step in that direction. And people who are interested in attending this, it's at Stanford on May 26th through the 28th. And, like I said, there's a, a link on the front page of our website at cognitiveliberty.org. Okay. Dennis, you got any comments on that? a fascinating conference. I wish I could be there. I'm sure you have things going as well. Um, hey, uh, l- let me ask you guys one other thing about uh, with, with with that conference. What is, is it? Three, is, it's a three-day conference? Uh, yeah, it's uh, two full days and like a Friday evening. And it's open to the public too? Uh, yep, anybody who wants to go. There's a, a fee to get in, but um, I believe for students, it's either waived or it's significantly reduced. Okay. Um, hey, I have a question, you guys, regarding sort of the technological side of this. We haven't talked about it a lot, but there's also uh, um, the idea of uh, uh, enhancement and the idea that some of these things, both pharmacological or, uh, or technological, could be used uh, to enhance us, to make us actually better, quote-unquote, than than we are. We really haven't talked about that much. Richard, what, what do you see happening there? I mean, we have all these things happening with nanobiotechnology and nanoneurology and nano this and that. Dennis, you should really start IBM, the itty-bitty machine company that you want to start. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, well, if any of your, re- uh, any of your listeners have about uh, $15 million, we'll get right on it. <laughs> all right. Well, you never know. That's funny. Right. <laughs> That, that area, I think, is one where it's 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 popping right now, you know. And so it's yeah. the idea of 
of technologies have always tried to kind of overcome limitations that mm-hmm. are imposed upon you know our by our bodies and um now it's just developing in in an area particularly with pharmacology where we see it from just students who are using Ritalin not because they have a diagnosis of ADD, but because they can stay up and study all night and, and they feel sharper and may be, in fact, sharper when they take their exams. And, um, you know, that's, that's clearly going to cause another very big social debate. And, and there, there are some very legitimate issues, you know. I mean, it's, it's always been a question of, um, you know, what's fair in, in sort of getting ahead, and we have steroids that many people feel uh, is an unfair kind of competitive aid. Um, But then again, in in schools, you know, when I got out of law school, everybody took, paid, you know, $10,000, the law firms paid for it, thank God, but it was thousands of dollars to take a prep class before you take the bar exam. And, uh, you know, whether it's texts that are used to enhance you or drugs or other technologies, um, whether or not you're able to use them or whether someone else is going to be able to use them when you're unable to use them is going to be another big issue that this conference will look at. And there are people who are beginning to think through a lot of these issues, and most of them will be at this, this conference. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to be interesting when some of these new neurotechnologies emerge and they are emerging, for example, neural t- VR technologies, mm-hmm. virtual reality, and that sort of thing that can, for example, simulate drug states and do a pretty good job of it, get very close to what drug states are actually like. How is that going to be dealt with in the regulatory sense? Maybe it won't even perceive, be perceived by the power structure as something that needs to be regulated, or maybe it will. I mean, it doesn't carry the baggage with it that it, that it would have if it were a drug. Somehow there's great concerns about the drug, but many of these neurotechnologies can simulate psychedelic and other states. So how will those be regulated? Um, I don't know. Maybe Richard has thoughts on that. Well, I think if, they're, if they approach the the um, magnitude or the experience of an actual psychedelic experience, they will be heavily regulated just like psychedelics are. One area right now that in human enhancements um, <clears throat> been really fostered by, and which I think doesn't bode well, but then again, maybe it does, is that the, uh, the United States government for military purposes, mm, right. you know, methamphetamine, is, is wasn't that the, the go pill that, Pilots have been using, and, mm-hmm. and um, there's a, prog- a program at DARPA right now called the AugCog program, which is augmented cognition, mm. um, and there are all kinds of exoskeleton devices. Mm-hmm. But you know, my focus is really on what's changing with with thinking, and it could cut both ways, you know. And like Dennis has said, it's 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 really a question of control, and if this is an area that threatens control or which allows the people who push forward in this, in this first to, to seize more control, then um, you know that's if we're going to be back. We're going to be in the same matrix of power that we're in now with respect to psychedelics. One thing I wanted to say very quickly that kind of fits into this is that when when we talk about the drug war, I can see that actually 
once again, kind of the metaphor becoming real and, and in terms of other drugs being used to fight the illegal drugs so that the war, the power, the control mechanisms right now exist by and large outside of our bodies, whether it's police or right. tapping phones or whatever methods the government uses to mm. suppress or control drug use. Right. Uh, there's already encroachments going on that are going to bring a type of internal policing, which would be the potential. It would start with prisoners. It would start with other people who have had, who aren't very uh, politically powerful, being forced to take drugs that essentially block the brain's ability to to either have these things pass through the blood-brain barrier or otherwise reach the brain and affect them. And so I can see. Um, right, the, such as the vaccines that exactly. are developed and, and for cocaine and heroin hmm, users. Right, right. Yeah. abuse is one that you know has existed since the 30s when when it was I guess some some people at a rubber plant went out and had uh, had beers at lunch and came back and all started vomiting intensely because huh. of the chemical that was being used in this this plant and you know in American ingenuity this was immediately turned into a drug that um, would be used to, to what they call to, to, to chemically enforce sobriety. And that's a good thing if you need this drug. It really is. And if the you take it by choice, no and that's problem. Precisely. But yeah. what quickly happened was courts began imposing this on people who were you know, arrested for alcohol-related offenses. And mm-hmm. we've got hundreds of thousands of people being arrested now for marijuana offenses, and it just so happens we have a drug under development that's um, got applications to reduce the effect of marijuana when smoked, and that could well be imposed as a probation condition. Right. I've, reports, I've read reports up to like 75% or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I think that this, the, the, the drug war you know, could take the next strange and bizarre step, which is the good dra- drugs versus the bad drugs inside your body. Huh, amazing. Yeah. They go inside. Drugs the will be used to by drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and then in another sort of even more bizarre side to that coin, what we sometimes think of as the good drugs, the psychedelics and these sorts of things, have all been investigated thoroughly for warfare. Hmm. And, you know, there are scenarios yeah. involving aerosol release of LSD, MDMA, the whole gamut of of these things in battlefield situations to essentially discombobulate the enemy. Dennis, one of the guys here in the studio just wrote on a piece of paper and held it up and wrote MK Ultra. MK Ultra. And of course, so we know there's this, this amazing history, odious history certainly, of all of this stuff. Right, right. Amazing, amazing. And still ongoing imaginary. I mean, I imagine so. And so. Bet on it. You know it, right. <laughs> okay, well, okay, here's another one. Richard, again, this one's from the web. Uh, ask Richard his opinion of Edward L. Bernays, or maybe just uh, uh, what the role of PR is in general in this whole game. PR, public relations? Well, yeah, public relations. Well, I think it's, it's kind of touched on that earlier in terms of just it's, it's propaganda. Hmm. And the question is, you know, are people going to drink what they're selling, or are they going to look around? Drink ayahuasca. And, and yeah. Um, <laughs> So I don't know. I mean, that's kind of been well, well worked over. The, the 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 drug war, of course, has the government's side of it has benefited immensely from its use of PR propaganda, and um, there's no no I don't see that lessening. Although there's been very 
some attempts to do so, and actually the budget's been going down for that. But ultimately, I think the government right now has kind of got its propaganda machinery really oriented on this so-called war on terror, which right. provides for it many of the things that the war on drugs has provided in the, prior to this, you know, which is a, an uh, ill-defined enemy, one which allows them to take as much power as possible. And, and I think any of these will be uh, facilitated or strengthened by the government's use of whatever form of media or propaganda, or if you want to call it PR, uh, they can get their hands on, and, and the same with corporations to, to push their products. Um, so, you know, it, it, it kind of it does come back to the idea that, you know, hopefully people will maintain a certain sense of responsibility to, to pay attention and to, to care about, you know, what goes into their, their minds and to, to, to use their own filters appropriately. And, um, you know, if they want to accept propaganda or PR, I guess that's, that's their choice. But um, hopefully others will kind of see through it and follow their own vision of things. You know, uh, as, as I'm reading the news here, the synergies between these things are just amazing. Here's a story here. Listen to this, you guys. It says, what if you could one day unlo- un- unlock your door or access your bank account by simply thinking your password? Uh, too far out, perhaps not. Researchers at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada, are exploring the possibility of a biometric security device that will use a person's thoughts to authenticate her or his identity. I'm aware of some studies that are being done now that allow people to... I'm not sure how far these are going, but what I've heard is the following scenario, which would be you could walk up to your ATM machine, which, you know, usually uses like a four-digit code, mm-hmm. think the numbers, and it would react appropriately. And the reason that this may work is apparently um, some of these uh, magnetic imaging or um, other types of sophisticated um, brain imaging are showing that when people think of particular numbers, it's actually a very discrete, localizable area of the brain that apparently lights up and that these can, in fact, be therefore correlated um, fairly successfully when one thinks about the number. Outrageous. um, well, I don't know. I mean, that's got. I think that's got some exciting. All of this stuff oh, yeah, again, I mean, has it's, exciting yeah, it's, applications. It's amazing but to me. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, it is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Now here's another one, yeah. Dennis. The, Name the, a technology, and they'll find a way to use it to maliciously. <laughs> yeah. Well, now here <laughs> seems to be. You know, we're very in, in, ingenious of that. <laughs> yeah, and we're and we're easily self-deluded too. That's for sure. I think who was it that said that uh, that that man's. Uh, uh, ability for self-delusion was limitless or something like that. But anyway, De- Dennis, here's, we talked about this off the air, the Lancet, which is a big uh, UK medical journal, uh, right. calls for LSD testing. I know, and I know this was sort of like, well, duh, but uh, anyway, they're talking about, and, and in fact, the interesting thing about this article was the journal's editor, Richard Horton, said he was not advocating recreational drug use, but championed the benefits of researchers studying the effects of drugs such as LSD and, and ecstasy by using them on themselves in the lab. <laughs> now this is like back to the '60s, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, it's amazing. So well, the, yeah, I, I read that editorial. I'm not sure I got that out of it, but you know, that's the old shamanic method. Right, right. So, you know, heal yourself, right? Right, right. And in fact, uh, you know, psychedelics may—I uh, mean, they undoubtedly probably do have medical applications. But there is this issue of. Why should they only be taken by sick people? Right. You know, 
there's no doubt that they are some of the best tools around to understand consciousness and to understand the nature of the brain-mind relationship and all of these things that we're concerned about. So that sort of crosses over into this area of of enhancement, you know, in and some way they liberty. really are, and cognitive liberty. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really are mind-expanding, or they can be. That was what was touted for LSD when it first came on, mm-hmm. and uh, in some sense they are. So one of the issues with cognitive liberty is, you know, should mind expansion or consciousness exploration be regulated or not, you know, and to what degree and so on. All of these strategies are about control. You know, the government, governments have interests in controlling people and people have interests in resisting that control. Uh, So you get this dynamic tension. Mm. And this is one reason that psychedelics are so dangerous. You know, they really are dangerous in the eyes of the government because as I think we said before, you know, they make you have funny ideas. <laughs> and funny ideas are inherently dangerous to the established order. Right. We can't right. have people going around having funny ideas. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make for, you know, good workers, good responsible citizens who mm-hmm. just, you know, work, pay their taxes, do what they're told, right. don't cause trouble. Use the sanctioned yeah. drugs. Right. It makes right. it makes people into Alcohol, people who think right. too much are inherently right. dangerous all right um okay i gotta do it uh it's quarter after one you so know, you're gonna cut us off no i gotta do this oh. uh <laughs> this this comes this comes from the web uh mike dennis la Charrera. yep i gotta drag it out again not so much in a recounting of the events but how dennis looks back 35 years ago to that time period how has it influenced his path uh, his path we all know where Terence went with it, and how does it play into his into his current work? If all, uh, if at all, it would be interesting to get his take on the time wave theory if you guys have time. But how does that piece of work play, and does he look at resonant time periods at all? Oh, so man. I don't know. That's a lot. But anyway, uh, how do you look <laughs> back at La Chirera, story, You know, huh? how do you look at La Chirera 35 years ago? Well, I look at it as something that happened 35 years ago. Hmm. You know, so it was very important. It set me on a path, uh, you know, that in some ways I'm sure I wouldn't be going the direction I went or am going if it weren't for La Chirera. Mm-hmm. But it's very hard to sort of, I mean, it, I'm not obsessed with it, right. you know. I've been there, I've done that, and I'm trying to take what I've learned from it and right. move right. on. Okay. One little echo of the past is I somewhere, I think it was in the Invisible Landscape, um, or maybe it was in um, Dennis's brother's book, uh, True Hallucinations, but I think in some, some one of these books, somewhere I recall Dennis in the midst of one of these states saying, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. <laughs> and, uh, that would and, be and here we are. Here we are. Here we are. It's <laughs> like uh, you know Mark Twain's little uh, saying that uh, history right. doesn't, doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow, I love it. And it's so true because there have been some certainly resonant things happening in my life in the last few months, i got to tell you. So, 
Anyway, well, look, I, I think you guys, uh, I think that's a good place to wrap things up. I can't tell you how much uh, all of us appreciate it, and um, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, Dennis, as I always tell you guys, your time is so valuable, and I recognize it, and I appreciate it. And uh, so do uh, all the listeners, and, in fact, uh, listeners now tonight, uh, wherever they may be, not just locally and regionally. So um, so from my heart, both you guys, Richard and Dennis, uh, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Mike. Well, thanks very much for having me on. It's been a blast. You bet. And we'll, uh, we're going to put more and more of these things together uh, as we move forward. And I'm, 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 I'm getting close to having the opportunity to broadcast more frequently than just once a week. So anyway, we've got big ideas, and uh, you guys are real important in all these things. So thanks again, and uh, we'll be in touch, all right? Okay. Okay. Good night, everybody. Richard, good night, everybody. We'll talk to you downstream. Sounds good. Okay. Bye. Wonderful. All right, everybody. That was Richard Glenn Boyer and Dr. Dennis McKenna. As I've said all night, you can find information about those wonderful gentlemen on the web at uh, www.mikehagen.com. And uh, hey, Dennis, are you still there? I'm still here. All right. Sorry, this just came in on the chat. It said, "Ask about Terrence's kids. How are Finn and Cleo?" Doing well. All right, easy enough. Doing well. That's all we need to know. And we know Kat's doing well, and we're going to try to put something together with her in the future. Yep. All right, thanks again, Dennis. We'll talk. Okay. All right. Ciao. All right, everybody. This is Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN, Columbia. Uh, I'm just absolutely thrilled that we were able to bring the program to you tonight live, uh, streaming over the Internet, thanks to the gentlemen and women at uh, CosmicWavesRadio.com. Thanks to Dennis and Richard one more time. And thanks to ISM, we'll hear a little bit more from them right now. This is called Breathe. You can find information from them on the web as well.
All right, once again, that's ISM from their recently released, uh, released CD, Monkey Underneath. We've heard stuff from them all night. Great, great new rock and roll band uh, from New York City. And uh, we'll play a couple more from them as we finish up the show tonight, okay? All right, so wow, amazing. Dr. Dennis, thanks again. Richard Glenn Boyer. You can find out information about both of these guys on the web. Dennis at www.hefter, H-E-F-F-T-E-R dot O-R-G, and Richard at cognitiveliberty.org. And, of course, the, those links will be up at my site from here on out. And you can always get over there from, uh, from my site. Okay? So let's talk a little bit about uh, what's coming up on the program here, if I can find my notes. Um, well, we did it, you guys. We streamed the show live, and it's happening right now. And I couldn't be more excited about it. So thanks to everybody that's been a part of that. Uh, CosmicWavesRadio.com, Carrie, and Paul, and Kent for uh, introducing us, and Larry for uh, helping me with everything that you've done for so long and for giving me the courage to even, you know, attempt this stuff. And everybody else and all the wonderful listeners who, who have been encouraging us and and uh, I just couldn't be more pleased and I'm so happy that we were able to do it tonight. It couldn't have been more fitting uh, to begin the worldwide broadcast with Dennis McKenna and Richard, a wonderful addition as well tonight. And as I said, I'm just, uh, I'm just absolutely thrilled. So thanks to everybody who's been involved. It was an historic occasion. I don't know how many of you were listening. Not that many, I'm sure. I uh, heard it live. But uh, if you did, well, that's one that we can share. Okay? All right. Thanks to everybody else who has been sending in art and music. I love it. Send more. We love it. We love it. Send it. All right? If you want Larry to do some work, you know, you got to get him more art and music, and then he can... Uh, improve those sections of the website. And there's some great stuff up there already. So hop on the web, go to MikeHagan.com and just click around. There's lots of cool stuff happening, including archives of all of these programs. So if you weren't one of the lucky ones who got to hear this show live, you can, uh, if you register at the site, which costs you nothing and is very simple, you can uh, have access to the archives, which will be up in just, uh, I don't know, 12 or 24 hours or something like that. All right? And if you do that, you'll also be able to get some free music. Uh, Yachai, my friends Jeff and William from Yachai Music have made their entire CD, Sweet Mother Mercy, available if you go register at the site. And uh, Larry's made some pretty cool screensavers and some things there, so there's some freebies. And like I say, it doesn't cost anything, and we're not asking for a whole lot of information. All right? So get over there. Let us know who you are. And, of course, thanks to those of you who have already done so, all right? My email address, orbitradio at AOL.com. The website, as always, Mike Hagan, H-A-G-A-N.com. The phone number here in the studio. If anybody's out there, uh, and I have to apologize, there were a couple of people that were calling uh, during the program and wanted to get on the air. The problem is when I have two people on the air, i.e. Dennis and Richard, I can't take a third phone call. So I wasn't able to pick up those calls. Um, so if you'd like to call now, uh, I'd be glad to talk to you. I don't know if it's, uh, it's sort of ex post facto, but I don't know. Maybe uh, you could just yell at me or something. Anyway, uh, that number is 443-8255 if you want to give me a call, and I'll talk to you on the air right now. All right, let's uh, talk about upcoming guests really quickly. Marco Roden, next week. Really interesting guy who's come up with some 
new concepts of uh, uh, physics and aerodynamics, a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm not that familiar with his material yet, so I'm not going to speak uh, at great length about it. But if you go to uh, Roden Aerodynamics on the web, uh, you'll find out some interesting stuff about this guy, Marco Roden. And he was on Jeff Rents uh, just a week or two ago, and some people asked me if I would get him on the program, so I'm going to try to do that. Uh, actually, not going to try. We've already set it up, but I just need to get uh, uh, familiar with his material. All right, the week after that, Dr. Alan Goldstein. You know, we were just talking a little bit about uh, these advanced technologies, nanotechnology in particular, with Richard and, uh, and Dennis. And the show on the 15th will be with Dr. Alan Goldstein, who's the professor of biomaterials and the chair of molecular cell biology and biomedical materials and engineering and science uh, at uh, Alfred University. And he is at the bleeding edge of this whole nano-bio-neurotechnology uh, movement or uh, evolution, explosion. I don't know what the hell to call it. But it is absolutely outrageous what Dr. Goldstein is going to talk about on the program in two weeks. And if you'd like to get a little bit familiar with some of that stuff, go on the web, go over to my news page. Actually, I think it's on the front page right now. Uh, at MikeHagan.com, there's a story. If you page down just below the information about Dennis and Richard, uh, right below that, there's a story that's called I Nanobot, and it's written by Dr. Goldstein, and it's well worth reading. And uh, certainly if you want to uh, be familiar with some of these concepts before the program, read that article before we talk to Alan Goldstein on the 15th of May. All right, the 22nd of May... Uh, I'll be just back from Las Vegas, a trip that I'm looking very forward to and uh, with great anticipation. And the Monday I return will be a program with Rian Eisler, one of my favorite authors uh, who wrote a book that uh, I think is one of the most important books that's been written in our age. And it's called The Chalice and the Blade. And I don't say that with uh, uh, hyperbole. I really mean it. It's a remarkable book, and there's some concepts in there that are just uh, really important. Now, here's that caller, so we're going to grab this phone call here real quick and say hello. Welcome to Orbit. Who's this? This is Otto. Hey, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Good. Great program you had. I was one of the people who tried to call in. I'm sorry that I wasn't able to take oh. the call. Our our our, uh, our phone system only allows two people to be on the line at any given time. That's why I sort of had a little forum put together here at the station. No problem. I had, I just had a, I really enjoyed the program. I had a couple of ideas I wanted to fold into the mix, and I, some of them got kind of addressed. But one of the thoughts was really that uh, fundamentally, where our you know, war on drugs and the really strenuous laws we have on drugs, you know, it, it fundamentally comes from a religious, you know, kind of a faith orientation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it, at the same time, and I'm not quite sure how all these things fit together, but to a certain degree, you know, we, we had the, the comments about cognitive liberty and about what kind of mental states people have access to. Right. And kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum, ever since the Enlightenment, we've kind of said it's not okay to be insane and to be at abroad, you know, at large. Mm. And so that's kind of another thing that we've got going on kind of from the other direction. You know, we, yeah. In the you know, early Middle Ages, we didn't lock up crazy people, but mm. at some point we, we decided it's not okay to be crazy and to be at large. And to a certain degree, I think it reflects... You know, there's a, kind of like a temporary uh, a view that, you know, having your mind altered means that you're kind of temporarily crazy. So, Yeah, you know, a lot of Dennis's work over the years has been, uh, he's had a great interest in schizophrenia. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the shamanic 
tradition sort of suggests that that a shaman, uh, one definition is sort of uh, a sanctioned schizophrenic. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. Uh, yet, yet in this culture, it's something as you say. I mean, they lock you away, but uh, it, it's definitely a reflection on uh, on the access to other than a very thin corridor of uh, allowable experience. You know, we, we have a lot of our legal framework that traces back to to some fairly, I mean, a fairly narrow view coming from you know, the European. <laughs> religious, you know, the Purit- Puritan. Well, you know, uh, if you think about it, a uh, hundred years ago, right at the turn of the century, between you know the the nineteenth and the twentieth century, we, we we think of that, you know, with nostalgia, and you know, thank God that's gone with, and 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 we're so uh, so much more advanced and enlightened than that now. But you know, back then they would they would put, uh, uh, you know. Like pantalones on the legs of pianos, uh, because because the piano uh, leg, you know, naked furniture oh just made gosh, people yeah. very nervous, right? So, but but so we look at that and laugh, right? Yet we have the same sort of attitude towards consciousness that yeah. they had about naked furniture, and it's uh, it's easy to make fun, but we really haven't moved that far, and and well, and. Yeah, and, and this is important that we start to recognize it because, I mean, hell, I mean, who's who can tell you what you what what your allowable experience is? Well, and if you look at the at the uh, confiscatory for, drug forfeiture laws and the, that whole approach, mm. we haven't moved that far beyond the Spanish Inquisition. Oh, not at all. In fact, it, yeah, it's it, it's it, it's disguised a little bit better, but uh, but it's but it's you know essentially the same thing. But that's the name of history, basically. Yeah. Uh, you know. But uh, you know, we have people now. It's all about information and knowing who, uh, you know, who your friends are, sort of. I'll tell you what, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take Richard Glenn Boyer on my team uh, against any of these government punks, you know, <laughs> quite frankly. Uh, so I think that uh, we're learning that, you know, that, you know sometimes you just got to take the bull by the horns or so, or just do your own thing. I mean, you know, I'm not advocating anybody do anything. I'm advocating that I'll do whatever the hell I want, and I won't harm anyone in the meantime, and I'll try to be a good person, you know? Well, that's the rational argument for why the drug laws, even from a, maybe even potentially from a conservative perspective, you know, the drug laws don't really make that much sense from a rational point of view. No, no, it's, uh, and, and from an, uh, from a, uh, uh, efficacy point of view. I mean, it's been, as Dennis pointed out, and, you know, and, just an abject failure. I mean, you might as well argue that it's, there, uh, it's what it really is is a war on Central and South America and the polity of those countries. Yeah, and a war and a war on personal freedom. I mean, uh, you know, and and this stuff and and money comes into a lot of it, but money certainly is not one of the one of the issues with the psychedelics. You know, there's never been a whole lot of cash generated from uh, ayahuasca or from even mushroom, from for for, for that matter. It's because uh, they're deconditioning agents, you know, and if you've got a whole lot of people taking deconditioning agents all the time, they start to see things uh, through a different lens, and pretty soon all of those established power structures start to fall away, and that that is why the psychedelics are, are, are illegal, because they just totally threaten uh, the establishment and all the institutions that are somehow uh, sacred, but yet have been absolute, uh, they've, we, we've been betrayed by all of our institutions, whether whether it was purposeful or not, but uh, you know they've ab- absolutely failed us. And uh, but of course, institutions are like animals; they just want to stay alive. 
You know. The, the third thing I wanted to fold in the mix, and I think some of your your folks talked about it a little bit, was uh, really the, the the role that technology is going to play Man. Uh, within the and I mean, here I'm thinking of of a of a speech I saw that was put on by the Council on Foreign Relations. <laughs> Where they ha- they had Ray Kurzweil come and speak. Sure, I know and, Ray. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I've, talked to, I've talked to his partner on the air, uh, uh, Dr. Terry Grossman. He's been on the program before. Yeah, and so he he gave this talk and he said, you know, we've got, you know, Intel has on their 15 year plan basically, the the you know that 15 years from now they're going to have hardware capability equal to the human brain in terms of computational speed, mm. and you know the, the same exponential progress that we've seen every year for the last hundred years in information technology on the hardware side is also true on the software side and MRI imaging and stuff like that's going to continue to progress and so along about that same time we're probably going to have reverse engineered the software for the human brain too that Mm -hmm. is we'll we'll understand down to the molecular level thought and so it'll be possible to incorporate devices little little nanostructures Mm -hmm. into our bloodstreams and then they'll be you know, wired to the net, and you can basically just flick a switch with your thought mm-hmm. and move yourself into any virtual reality sure. that you could get access to. I mean, obviously, there's right. going to be a lot of programming involved there, but at that point, you know, wh- whether or not it's actually just done by technology or with some, you know, physio- physical, you know, physiochemical mind-altering drug, well, you know, right. what's, the, what's the difference? No, it's uh, yeah, the line becomes very blurry. And you're right, I mean, I, you know, this is stuff that... Uh, that Dennis's brother Terrence spoke, you know, r- really uh, clearly about many years ago. You know, long before this stuff was coming to be. And his major, one of his major uh, points was the f- w- was the idea uh, that not only is the technology advancing, but the rate of advancement is advancing, at both at an exponential rate. So, so people that talk in terms of 50 years from now or 500 years from now or whatever, these are ludicrous statements because we're 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 quickly approaching uh a time where the development of all of these things goes asymptotic it basically goes vertical well the, it, the title of ray's book is the singularity, the singularity is near and, right right and that's a, that, that's a concept that uh you know came out of the nasa conference back in 1977 actually by, by this guy Vern i forget what his name was uh Werner Vinge i think uh but anyway you know, and Terrence uh, talked about it, and there are you know many people that have certain psychedelic experiences talk about uh, something that seems strange in the future, but uh, who knows what it is? I mean, but but technology is advancing like crazy. Pharmaceuticals are advancing like crazy. Uh, the synergies between them. This is the thing that's really interesting: is that you know, it's easy to look at one or two individual advancements and say, oh, you know, okay, well. You know, I can sort of picture what that thing will look like in in five years, but yeah. but 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 trying to combine what that thing will look like combined with the other technologies that it may be involved in, you know, in a synergistic manner, it becomes outrageous. You just can't predict what's going to come out of that. You know, yeah, it becomes much more nonlinear and it's oh my god, it's it outrageous. Hard, yeah, it gets hard to even be able to comprehend. Yeah, so we're getting that. You know, that's where we're coming. You know, I guess the I guess the buzz line for me is it sort of like. Uh, you know the the number of options available are about to really increase. <laughs> oh yeah. So I think I look forward to it, but it's going to be a it's going to be a strange thing, and a lot of people are going to really freak out about the things that uh, that are coming. But I don't see 
Uh, I see I see less control. Um, I'm not one of these guys that's uh, that, that believes that <coughs> that the control freakers, which I understand exist, and I realize, um, you know, certainly that there are groups vying for control and working very hard for it. But uh, I don't think anyone's really being successful, and I think that they're going to become less and less successful as time uh, and the strangeness of time moves forward. So I think the I think the horse is out of the gate. I think the Oh, yeah, you, you know, can't put this genie back in the and bottle. There's, you know, there, there's some of us who have enough respect for, you know, kind of things that evolve over billions of years that, we, you know, we get a little bit nervous about, you know, things changing so quickly. But the challenge, I think, is going to be, you know, it's kind of like if you think about computers, you know, it's, you'd, you'd kind of wish that people wouldn't create viruses, but they're, you know, what, whatever is possible basically is going to happen. Right, it just, yeah. And so the challenge, I mean, the, when, when you start to talk about these nanotechnologies in your bloodstream that you know, keep you from ever having a heart attack or that can allow you to, you know, switch your brain into a different reality, right. security issues are going to be important, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, that, I mean, but, you know, that, you know, we'll have this, you know, just like with, with you, know, the, you know, there comes the latest virus and there's the latest patch. It's just, I think, mm. you know, yeah. we're, just, we're going to see that kind of stuff raised to new levels. I think so. I think we'll just have to kind of muddle through. I guess. I guess. Well, look, hey, I got to get on with a couple things here. All right. Uh, but thanks for calling. I appreciate it. I'm glad you stuck around. Good program. Thanks. Hey, thanks again. Take care. All right. So uh, let's play another song here. We'll come back and sort of finish things up. I got a couple stories in the news. We can do space weather. But we'll play one more from ISM here. And this one is called Out of the Way. Again, relevant to the conversation tonight. And more information about this wonderful band from New York, STM Records, uh, www.ismmusic.com. And you can find them on my website as well. This song is called Out of the Way, and I'm being redundant.
out of the way ism radio orbit this is mike all right uh we got a few more things space weather quickly mars if you're looking for mars uh well it's about 180 million miles from you uh and it's actually pretty dim right now not easy to see but tonight uh the moon will find it for you the pair will be sort of side by side and in the sky right now so get outside and go look at them. Also, uh, there is um, a pretty interesting sunspot right now on the front side of the sun looking towards us. Designated number 875. And uh, potential for anything from this puppy. It's actually sort of like two of them together. And it looks like the eyes of a monster, as a matter of fact. So there's some interesting imagery of that at spaceweather.com. And let's see, what else? Uh, Mark your calendar. About a week from now, uh, this comet that we've been talking about, 73P Schwassmann Wachmann 3, is going to be passing by the Ring Nebula in the constellation Lyra. And if you have a decent backyard telescope, that should be an absolutely wonderful sight. And uh, Kent uh, Kent put it best. He said that... uh, uh, that after, uh, how did he put it? He said, after studying the comet schwassmann vachmann uh, for an extended period of time, that he's determined that it is beautiful. <laughs> and uh, it is, if you see some of the imagery. And uh, so far it hasn't hit our planet, and I don't expect it to. Uh, there are some folks that are saying that might happen, but... Well, you never know. Anyway, for now it hasn't, so just put your gazers on and take a look at a beautiful comet blazing through the night sky. And uh, the whole month of May should be pretty interest, uh, interesting with this particular comet starting next week. Okay, uh, let's see. What else? Astronomy week. This week, May 1st through the 7th. On the 4th, Jupiter at opposition to the Earth. Uh, let's see, we also have uh, the 95th spring meeting. Oh, I have to tell you this. This is actually very funny. Uh, on May 4th through the 6th, we have the 95th spring meeting of the American Association of Variable Star Observers, the AAVSO, as it were. And this is in Rockford, Illinois. That's my hometown. Rockford, Illinois. The 95th First of all, who would ever have imagined there have been 95 annual meetings of the American Association of Variable Star Observers? Uh, Most people don't even know what a variable star is, and I'm one of them. Anyway, May 5th, National Astronomy Day. Go out and look at the heavens. On the 5th as well, uh, the Eta Aquarids uh, meteor shower is peaking. I'm not sure if we can see that in this part of the hemisphere, or in uh, the northern hemisphere or not, but the Aquarids, uh, or Aquarids, I'm not sure how you pronounce it actually, uh, will be peaking in the next week or so. And also the 5th is the 45th anniversary of uh, Alan Shepard, the first U.S. man in space. Uh, He was on a launch uh, or on a mission that was called Freedom 7, and that happened in 1961, 45 years ago on May 5th. All right, uh, it's May now, so uh, let me read a little bit about what's happening with the planets. 
Jupiter will be uh, as bright as it gets this month uh, during the year. Jupiter goes through different phases, as all the planets do, of brightness, and it'll be pretty bright uh, all month. And um, as I said earlier, it's at opposition on the 4th of May. Let's see. Uh, if you are up at dusk uh, and outside, Jupiter will be low in sort of the east-southeast sky, and then it'll move up through the southeast to the south-southeast as the month sort of moves along. And uh, Jupiter is retrograding right now, and it is uh, a nice sight in the evening sky, right? Saturn will be visible uh, in the west-southwest at dusk in May. be pretty bright, as a matter of fact. Uh, let's see, what else is happening? Mars. <sighs> Mars sort of descends in the west, and uh, it'll be a little bit to the lower right of Saturn, going towards the constellation of Gemini over the course of the month. And let's see, what else? Venus in the morning. Low, low, low in the, on the horizon uh, as the dawn is brightening and uh, moving from the south uh, to the north, uh, or north of east, I guess, as the month moves along. All right? Jupiter opposite the sun on May 4th, as I've said the third time now. That's what opposition means. And uh, I don't know. Last chance until late 2007 to see Venus and Jupiter uh, simultaneously. So that'll be on on, uh, on the morning of uh, May 4th. All right, as I said, that comet, we're watching that. If you really want to find out what's happening with that, go over to Kent's site at www.cyberspaceorbit.com. He follows it closer than anyone, and there's wonderful imagery as, uh, as well over at Kent's site. And uh, let's see, there's more going on in the stars, as always, but we won't uh, fiddle with it right now. What else can we talk about? Yeah, next week we've got Marco Roden. Should be very interesting. We're going to be talking about alternative energy, different ways of looking at physics, magnetism, electromagnetism, all these sorts of things. Um, let's see. News. Let me go to the uh, website here real fast. I mentioned really quickly that story while Dennis and Richard were on the air about using your thoughts as passwords. That's interesting. Here's one. Panel warns, uh, panel warns of a crisis in American physics. Yeah, I've been saying, well, I shouldn't say I've been saying it, but certain uh, members of the community have been saying that for quite some time now. And this will tell you what the, how big the crisis really is. Listen what they're interested in. After the conversation we had tonight, now check this out. Physics in America is at a crossroads and in crisis, just as humanity stands on the verge of great discoveries about the nature of matter and the universe. Uh, you know, particle physics uh, have done virtually nothing for the average person. Name one thing that particle, particle physics have done to help you or me or anybody else in the last hundred years. Anyway, uh, um, a panel from the National Academy of Sciences concludes in a new report, the United States should be prepared to spend up to half a billion dollars in the next five years to ensure that a giant particle accelerator now being designed by a worldwide consortium of scientists can be built on American soil. The panel said if that does not happen... Particle physics and the quest for fundamental forces and constituents of nature will wither in this country. It said this is a risky investment, uh, Harold Shapiro, an economist at Princeton, and the chairman of the 22-member commission said Wednesday at a news conference. No, oh, whatever, I'm over it. Okay, uh, the Lancet calls for LSD studies in labs. I read that one to you. Uh, Regenesis. The first life form may have been RNA. 
Everything after that point may be up for grabs, even the structure of DNA. Synthetic biologists have created DNA chains that function, but are made of different sugars and acids than the stuff in our cells. So that's going on. Anyway, get on the web. Go check it out on um, uh, at MikeHagan.com and go to the news page. Uh, and there are lots of stories right on the front page there, but everything is archived on the news page, and there's lots of interesting stuff that I wasn't able to get to tonight, but I'm glad I wasn't able to get to it because we had uh, two and a half hours with Dr. Dennis McKenna and Richard Glenn Boyer, and it was a wonderful program, and I thank everyone who participated and all of the listeners out there tonight on the web who listened and for the guys and girls at Cosmic Waves Radio that made it happen, for Charlie here at KOPN, uh, helping uh, get the technology in place here, and uh, for everybody who participated in the show. A wonderful evening, and I'm glad that we were able to uh, to pull it off. So we'll finish things off. One more from ISM. Once again, their most recent release, Monkey Underneath. This last one is called Crazy Dream. And, man, it really has been one. So we'll see you next week. Marco Roden. In the meantime, don't forget, check us out on the web, www.mikehagan.com. Thanks again to everybody. Such a crazy dream. The colors were so strong. The sun rose on the surface. And I was carried Talk to